0: Thompson, and you're listening to Grillin' JR with the voice of wrestling, Mr. Jim
1: Ross. Jim, how are you, man? Connie, I couldn't be better. It's great to hear your voice. Good to be talking to all the fans out there. We appreciate their support here in our, uh, our podcast. Grillin' JR is growing leaps and bounds. Great advertisers, great people that are helping us out. But the most important people we know are those ones that are listening right now. But our topic today
0: Royal Rumble 2000. I got to tell you, Jim, when this one appeared on the docket, I was really, really excited. This is one of my absolute favorite rumble shows. I know lots of our listeners really favor 1992 as their favorite rumble match. I actually prefer the 97 rumble match itself, just a little bit better than 92, but the rest of the card here for Royal Rumble 2000, I think is hard to beat. I think outside of the rumble match, it might be my favorite rumble ever.
1: A lot of talent. We were deep in talent, even though we didn't have Austin healthy at that time. Uh, It seemed like a lot of the guys saw opportunity when Steve had his neck surgery. Uh, A lot of guys saw opportunity to move up the card because he left a gaping hole when he got sidelined. So it was an interesting time of transition, uh, but we had some big-time players ready to go play in that manner, including uh, Triple H, Mick Foley, uh, for sure. And, of course, the great one, The Rock, was had assumed his place at the top of the card with the stone cold being in San Antonio, recovering from his neck surgery. So interesting time. And everybody came to play big and look, Conrad, the, the bottom line of that is still one of stone Cold's puns. It was the garden and nobody, no matter what anybody says, all the cool kids that are wrestling, oh, the garden is another venue, it's not another venue. And if you are a pro wrestler and you look at the garden as another venue, you need to get your ass out of the business. You need to go back to wherever you came from and do wherever you can be a big star because the garden is the garden, the world's most famous arena for no, for a good reason. So I think the garden had a big hand in the overall performance of that show. And it, it has some moments on it that I think people were not expecting that we'll talk about, but it was a really a good show from tar- start to finish. Uh, some of the finishes, uh, you know, we can always second guess those. We do every week here and everybody else does every day at someplace else, but Damn, man, it was a good show. You're right. It was, a, it was one of the fun shows to do. Lawler and I were the American broadcasters, American English speaking broadcasters or Southern Southern speaking. <laughs> and I enjoyed that show with Jerry. It was a full nice work, man. That the rumble itself is a load. So it was, it was really cool. I'm, I'm glad we we're doing this show today. And I think the fans will say the same thing when they, when they are through hearing about it and hope they've watched it or they can watch it right now, whatever, but you know, nonetheless, it's a, it's a cool show.
0: It is a cool show. And you talked about the importance of Madison square garden. This is the first time that a Royal rumble has been held in Madison square garden. Uh, the, uh, the next one would be 2008, but this is the very first time. And it's also the first time that a million dollar gate had happened for the WWE at Madison square garden, which I guess when you think about it, it seems like it should have probably already happened. Uh, but just with the way they were scaling and pricing tickets, this is the first time it happened. Uh, of course, today, everybody's talking about this show because it is the exact 20-year anniversary of this show. It drew in a sellout capacity crowd, 19,231 fans, 16,629 of those paid a gate of $1,142,540, which means it is the sixth largest gate for a pro wrestling event ever in the United States. It broke the WrestleMania 10 mark of 960000 There's also 157,000 sold in merch, a banner day for WWE. And when you think about all the stadium shows and all the dome shows, it's pretty remarkable that at the time it was the sixth largest gate ever.
1: Yeah. And great accomplishment, uh, for the team. Uh, and of course, again, being in the garden full is extraordinary because you, you can walk the halls back in the locker room area. Uh, and see all these pictures of people that have played there, performed there, it's pretty incredible to know that you're there where Muhammad Ali fought for where Frank Sinatra sang, every major music group in the history of the world uh, seemingly has played the garden or wanted to, so it was a, uh, all the stars aligned well, and I thought the guys had a great night and, and they got paid well for that show. I mean, it was a, it did well on, on the pay-per-view market. Of course, you said $1.1 $1. $1 million in, on gross ticket sales ain't shabby.
0: And it's even remarkable to think that you're doing this with Austin on the sidelines, you may remember that survivor series 99, you guys did an angle where Austin was hit by a car. It really is just to cover up the fact that he's going to have to get neck surgery. So he's on the sidelines here. Meltzer would actually talk about that saying Austin switched his surgery from January 11th in Cleveland. To a new team of doctors in San Antonio, headed by Dr. Lloyd Youngblood on January 17th. And, uh, he would also say that he has an eight millimeter gap for his spinal cord. He should have an 18 millimeter gap. So we've got a, a, a real issue here where we've got a large spur and a neck protrusion. That's now compressing the spinal cord. It's going to put him in significant jeopardy of some sort of spinal cord injury. So it needs repair. But Youngblood is a guy that we would hear about a lot in wrestling is Austin, the first guy, to, to make the pivot. And then everybody sort of followed suit.
1: I think so. I think, uh, Dr. Youngblood who I got to know a little bit, cause I was down there, uh, more I mean, frequently, quite seemingly like, anyway, frequently, uh, he's a hell of a guy, a big strapping doctor who was, looked like to be an athlete at some point in his lifetime, kind of underst- the reason I say that is that he could better understand Steve's mentality. And of course, like any great athlete, you know, you always looking over your shoulder at when father Time's going to tap you on the shoulder and say it's over and Steve wasn't real sure that that was, that's his time to come. Obviously he hoped not, but I think Dr. Youngblood, not only from his skill as a surgeon, but also as a, uh, just as a being able to talk through issues was a big uh, help for Dr. Youngblood, uh, with, uh, for, with Dr. Youngblood and I, I, think that, uh, when I was there at the hospital, Youngblood would come in, and you know it was just a real great conversation. A man's man. He was he was exactly the kind of doctor Conrad that could relate best with the rattlesnake. And I thought that was a a great omen that Steve found Doctor Youngblood, uh, because Steve had doctor friends in San Antonio. He lived there, you know, and and was enjoying his life there to most of just some degree. Uh, But man, uh, Youngblood was he's a salvation. He say Steve's ass big time and, and got him some more time before he found he had to say adios.
0: Let's talk a little bit about, uh, the other big top star in the company, the rock, he had a little bit of controversy in January here with the opening uh, opie and Anthony radio show on January 6th. They had a, uh, a wrestling guest named sick boy, who I guess, uh, used to do some, some online musings and, and postings. But he said something online that got the rocks attention or at least the rocks publicist's attention and it struck a chord with the rock. He cuts a promo storms out of the interview, creates a bit of a controversy. I think the the line that upset rock was something about his heritage and him being half black and half Samoan, of course, it's some sort of racist comment and the rock says that, you know, Opie and, Anthony, Opie and Anthony essentially endorsed that type of talk and remark by putting it on the show. Do you remember the big falling out here with Rock and Opie and Anthony?
1: After I read about it again, I, I, I did remember it. Uh, so it probably wasn't as big a deal uh, as uh, maybe some would think. Uh, it was a big deal for uh, Dwayne, obviously. Uh, and well, and he did the right thing as far as having an issue with it because the the quotes that this sick boy guy was, uh, was doing allegedly were kind of kept from rock. So, uh, you know, Opie Opie and Anthony had, it was a big deal. I mean, that's a good get good interview. He's selling books. Rock was getting it, building his brand. And, and they had a very popular show for many, many years. So, uh, but a lot of it was just satire and tongue in cheek humor, but he didn't Didn't think it was very funny, nor did anybody else that knew rock and respected him. So it was, uh, I'd never heard of him doing anything like that before or since. Uh, so I, I admire his integrity on that, even though it might've cost him some book sales or whatever, made him might've made him look bad. Uh, he didn't give a damn. Uh, he's fresh himself. He's still on the show for a good while before he took, before he took up powder and, uh, and I, and I think that he did the right thing, quite honestly, I mean, of course I'm biased. I'm going to defend the guy to the end of the earth, but look, you can't, you go into a show, you feel like you're trapped. You're bushwhacked a little bit and and it's all about race and talking about your father's heritage and your mother's her- heritage. Uh, and while we're at that, by the way, we certainly want to say our condolences to rock and his family for the passing of his father, not that long ago. And Rocky was 75 Hall of Famer. Uh, and really was a, uh, unless you got in the wrestling business, like I did in the seventies, uh, uh, I'm thinking. You know, he, he, the seventies was a unique time to be an African-American in wrestling. All the bosses were white men. And unfortunately, many of those white men were racist. And, uh, Rocky Johnson had to endure whatever the booking, the the pay, the pay. He had no leverage. And when you're an independent contractor in the entertainment business and or sports business, whatever, uh, you're at a disadvantage to start with. So I thought that uh, uh, Rocky Johnson did an amazing job of steering the course, and uh, much like I talked about Ernie Ladd here, Ernie Ladd did the same basic thing, except Ernie may have taken it a one step farther because Ernie was willing to be a, a black heel, and in, in the era where most of the audience was white, and you know, and promoters were a little bit skittish of getting too much heat on a black man because it could cause riots, in their view. Uh, that, you know, it was, uh, I don't know. It was just hard to, it's hard to be a wrestler and be black in that era. He withstood all that bullshit and became a major star because the one thing that Rocky Johnson could do that the white promoters loved is sell tickets. So, uh, he was, uh, he's going to be missed. I felt bad for rock and his family. And, and I know they're enduring. I saw a quote on social media. The rock wrote about his dad it was very touchy. So. Uh, our thoughts go out to that, but, uh, the rock was always special, but he had these dads, the reason I bring his dad up, cause I don't, know if it's the right thing to do, but Conrad, the, his, he knew the fight. He he grew up a kid. He grew up a kid with his dad with all these issues. And he heard about him at the supper table. He knew what his dad was going through. So then when somebody throws that shit in his face, he don't just wipe it off and take it, he wipes it off and, and makes his exit. I'm not going to participate in this horse shit. And he didn't, and I, I fought him for it.
0: Let's talk about somebody else who's going to be making an exit. Ken Shamrock. Melzer would write, the Shamrock story has gotten really strange. It was reported he had a knee operation, but when Bruce Pritchard called to check on him, he told them that wasn't the case. After that, Shamrock was in Connecticut to meet with Vince and J.R. on December 30th regarding several issues. And he was walking fine, showing no signs of any surgery. We were also told there was no operation. And then this past week, Barry Bloom, who's Shamrock's agent, was telling WWE officials that Shamrock had just had his knee scoped in the last few days. The gist of the meeting seems to be that Shamrock is expressing an interest in taking time off to fight and perhaps take some opportunities in Japan. WWE is willing to let him leave and do the fights and leave the door open for a return, but not to keep him on salary while he's training. And the meeting ended with the idea that he would be making a decision this week, which last we've heard, it's a decision not yet made. Of course, we know Ken Shamrock's gone not too long after this. Uh-huh. What do you remember about the gist of the meeting?
1: Well, Kenny wanted, Kenny was not through fighting. You know, when we got Kenny to come in to, to work for us, uh, we had extremely high hopes for him because he was so much more advanced as a pro wrestler that, you know, we were just not quite aware that his skill set was as refined as it was. Now, did he did he get better while he was in WWE? Did he acquire more skills? Did he work with better people? Absolutely. And he and he, Kenny Shamrock's a very competitive guy, so he didn't want to be the worst match on the card, or is okay, or well, I thought he'd be better. That was not Kenny's mindset. So, uh, but he, he the thing about it was, he wasn't through fighting. He didn't have the MMA out of the system yet. And because he had had some uh, time on WWE television, which built his profile, built his own personal business and awareness, uh, he was offered some very lucrative money for two or three MMA fights. And I believe they were in Japan, which also would have probably migrated to the States at some point in time, but it was just not something that, that we felt like we could bankroll because uh, he was making a big money. I don't mean. Probably Kenny's making, I'm guessing somewhere between two and four, 250, 400 grand a year. And we just didn't have the, the funds at that time. in Vince's mind to bankroll that while he was away fighting, because here's what you got, you got him on payroll, you're, you're paying him big money. So what do you do if he gets hurt? Now, whose check is he on? Uh, and he's still gonna get paid for the fight people, but we got, we can't use him now in wrestling because he's hurt, but we're still, we're still got the ticket, but still got the tab. It just didn't make all the sense for everybody. It wasn't a win-win. Uh, i said many times, if Kenny Shamrock had stayed in WWE when he was just getting rolling and not had taken those, uh, not left to go back to, the, to mixed martial arts, he could have very easily have been at the top of our mountain. I've always believed that Kenny Shamrock had the ability and the mindset and the look and the believability to be a top star, but he didn't get the MMA out of his system. And, uh, that was, we can, we, you can't, Claudine, you can't curtail that. It's in his blood. So, uh, you know, we always let the door open, but for whatever reason, you know, uh, Kenny's kind of entrepreneurial spirit, free spirit as well, it just never did work out that we came back around together, even though we had, we had talks with really him ongoing at different times. It just didn't work out just the, the numbers, the timing, and it never seemed like to me, and I may be wrong too. I've been wrong a lot. That, that he was, until he got the MMA out of his system, he would never be a full-time guy as far as his passion and his dedication was concerned, because he would be serving more than one master and damn boy. It's hard to serve multiple masters. When you're in a WWE, you got one master, one company, and you got to hang with that. And sometimes that's very challenging. Well,
0: he was probably sleeping easy at night because a couple of years after this, he's having his probably highest paid fights ever like ufc 40 with tito ortiz it really is uh the ufc that first made dana white's opportunity profitable there with the fortita brothers it was a huge sellout lots of attention with him and tito and and they were off to the races after that that's when sort of the big money started to roll in so hindsight being what it is it may not have been a bad decision but let's keep it moving here and let's talk about uh Something you said on wrestling observer, live, uh, Meltzer would report that you were looking at putting Amy Dumas, Miss Congeniality and ECW and poppy Chulo together. And they may be introduced in the next four to six weeks. And, uh, allegedly you also said the sick boy in WCW was brought in for an evaluation this coming week, and there were plans to bring him in shortly. Uh, but he may, uh, do some work sort of get him ready. And JR also is particularly high on Steve Bradley and Barry Buchanan as far as developmental wrestlers. And he expects uh, D-Lo Brown to sign a new contract and says that Taz's debut isn't definite as they don't yet have a firm grasp on how they want to present his debut. So we know that we're going to see Taz's debut here, but there's lots of other names on here that I don't know when we'll talk about again. Let's start with Barry Buchanan. We know that he's going to come in and have a few different roles. Uh, within the WWF, he's got a lot of size, uh, Southern guy. And then for whatever reason, it just it didn't click. Why do you think that is?
1: Sometimes guys just don't, no matter how hard they try, no matter how hard everybody in the, in the equation tries it very, just did not c- connect, uh, with the audience at that point in time, there was, n- I, we never brought a better human being, reliable, trustworthy. Uh, a great, uh, addition to any locker room than Barry Buchanan, bull Buchanan, wherever you want to, you know, he, and he went through a lot of incarnations, B-square. always, yeah. always willing to try something, you know? So, uh, it's it just, sometimes people just don't click and connect and, and maybe that's part of the promotion's fault by not finding something that was more click worthy, perhaps you might say, but he was a good guy. Steve Radley was a very solid, fundamentally sound. Had some charisma. Uh, What a giant of a guy! Barry Buchanan had that the size that the WWE always coveted. But uh, just connecting with the audience is what you never know until you get there. But as far as the build up, the locker room, the training, the physical conditioning, skill levels, both those guys, Bradley and uh, Buchanan, had it. And so did D'Lo. D'Lo had a lot of charisma, and you know D'Lo getting into the Nation of Domination eventually was. Uh, was a pretty good deal for him. he got some notoriety, got some exposure, but Delo was kind of underrated in a lot of ways and uh, but, but, so we had good young guys all those guys I mentioned are athletic they're all physically tough they're all reliable, everything you wanted, but then you get to the final you get to the last dance of the night, and maybe they just don't have the rhythm to connect to the music that you're hearing in one of those situations. but all those guys are solid human beings man and they were exactly what we were looking for at that point in time. Let's talk
0: about, you know, you're going to bring in Amy. And of course we know she's going to go on to be Lita, mm-hmm. but originally when we first see her as a fan, you know, she's paired with Poppy Chulo. Of course, we know she's going to go on to be with the Hardy boys and then quite the single star on her own. And, um, she, uh, was, you know, often linked with edge Really, a bona fide Hall of Famer, but we didn't know that when we first see her. What was it about her that stood out in ECW that maybe got you guys' attention?
1: Her look, her athleticism, her Rana's, uh, Tope's, all that fancy name stuff for the uh, uh, Latin or Mexican uh, moves. Uh, she was just really athletic and fearless. I thought she had a, an enormous sex appeal. Uh, she wasn't a blonde. She was different. Uh, you know, when I first met her, I think she had not had her uh, breast augmentation. That's right. Which is totally her, her call wasn't ours. Uh, and that, of course, added to her look or, or it contributed to her look, whether you think it was added or not. Uh, but she just had it. She did connect to the audience for her, her eyes, her body English. She connected with you. If you're sitting in the audience watching her and that was some part of her magic. I always thought, but basically that she trained with men. she, she lived, you know, in a Spartan-esque environment in Mexico to pay her dues, to learn these moves. Uh, and, uh, that took a lot of courage for a single woman, uh, to leave the quote unquote safety of her own uh, surroundings in the States to go to Mexico city. And, uh, and, and exist there in a men's world in a strange country and, uh, and being a female, big props to leader for that. And, but I, I always thought she had high hopes. I, I used I teased her one time, never, we were in a meeting, maybe the first meeting, she came to see me in my office and she was wearing a really cool business suit It's either lime green or light blue or something. It was like light, light color, solid, uh, business suit. I remember that very, very distinctly. And I said, oh, uh, by the way, uh, what's that little tattoo you got on your arm? <laughs> it wasn't little. And it, look, you're in a different era there. Now nobody would say nothing about it. I was curious what the art, maybe it meant something. Maybe the, maybe the artwork or tattoo had significance and meaning that we could utilize. Right. So she, she jumped up, took her jacket off, and showed me the tattoo. There was nothing salacious or bad or, you know. Uh, it certainly was better than Ludwig, uh, Ludwig uh, Borges' SS tattoo on his calf uh, God and uh, so she was just she had it Conrad you could just sometimes you feel that somebody's got it and and look Papi Chula had it too but he wasn't as dedicated at least in my view at that point in time as, uh, as Amy was she really wanted to make it and because everything she'd gone through in Mexico you know when I talk with Vince about her you know he was impressed with it too she's not going to quit on us you know, Bear Bryant said one time, he was a great football coach to Alabama, you might remember him. He said, if I, I want to, my practices are hard. My practices are brutal because you're going to quit on my ass. I want you to quit on my ass in practice, not in a game. And she was not going to quit on the environment, the challenges, the uphill grind to get to where she wanted to go. And so she was a big, uh, she was a big gift for us as it turned out. And she ne- to, for me, she never failed to, she never failed to, uh, Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDIC. Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think
0: about how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right? I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%.
1: You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford anything, wherever you listen.
0: A lot to unpack on what, what all you just covered there. You said, you know, she had a breast augmentation, but it was her call. It wasn't something yep. that you guys suggested. Had you in, in previous discussions with other talent suggested that they have an augmentation?
1: Nope. Nope. Sure. Didn't didn't step, didn't step, didn't step in that territory because it's you're defenseless. you're, de, you're, in, you're defenseless. If something goes awry, it's gotta be a personal decision made by the, uh, talent. If they, if they believe it will enhance their TV persona and their overall look as to what is acceptable by uh, general society, then that's going to be their call. And uh, now if they need time off to get it done, obviously, if they need money to help them advance some money to get surgery done, you know, I think we've done those things, but that was always based on the talent's decision. And, uh, I, I you know, it makes people roll their eyes at this one, but you know, it just wasn't my place to tell you to get your, uh, get a, a boo job and then something go wrong and you did it because you felt like you were compelled to, because your boss said to, and now you get, to issues, uh, the WWE's got a problem. So that's kind of where we were that we just never did that to any, and some, I'm sure there's going to be somebody says, well, I knew if I didn't do it. Okay.
0: Well, yeah, that's what I was going to say is, do you think some talent, some female talent would say this was our, Sort of equivalent of when guys would say, well, no, they didn't tell me I had to take steroids, but I knew if I didn't, then I wouldn't be on TV. And it becomes this artificial psychoanalysis and you get in your head and you wind up doing it. The other thing I wanted to ask about, because I don't think we ever talked about this. You said Ludwig Borga had an SS tattoo on his calf. How did you guys find out about that? And and what was the plan of action?
1: Well, I guess I think somebody saw him in a shower. I didn't look at, I didn't, I didn't have guys do. You know, body cavity searches <laughs> or nothing, man. Nobody dropped their drawers in my office. Sure. I ain't, I ain't Harvey Weinstein here. Right. Uh, I just, we found out about it. And of course the deal was, I even think if I'm not not mistaken, he was wearing boots that had a very, it had a very, that were low cut and he had a very diminutive, uh, SS tattoo. It wasn't huge. It wasn't, you know, overbearingly large, but it was there. And so I think the, uh, discussion was the discussion should have been, we can't use you because if we do, we're basically condoning the Holocaust. So I looked at it and I didn't think that was anything we wanted to be compared to, uh, so he got high, he got better. He got different boots and covered it up. So I don't think maybe there's, there might've been a, a, once, maybe a handful of times before he got new boots that, that was even seen there. But it was very, uh, uncomfortable and he was uncomfortable and he was untalented, but he had a million dollar look. Uh, and, uh, and didn't, didn't add a, he, he he looked like a Ferrari Conrad with a, uh, four cylinder motor, right? He just didn't have the aptitude, but we had the great look, the intensity, the strength, all that stuff. But sometimes guys think that's all they need. And they don't need to work any harder to get better at their skill set. But the SS tattoo was very uncomfortable. And when, when he left, I don't even remember what the circumstances were, to be honest with you. Uh, nobody shed any tears. And it's sad. You know, he, he died much too, young, much too young. And he never got away from controversy and the dark cloud for whatever it was. whatever Well, several things, I'm hearing. So, that, yeah, that was a little uncomfortable situation there.
0: Let's keep it moving. Let's talk about somebody who's coming in Taz, as we know, is going to be coming in, but there's rumor in innuendo that Kevin Nash is unhappy and he may be getting cut loose from WCW Meltzer would say the WWF hierarchy had a meeting regarding making an offer to Nash. If he were to cut loose from WCW, the mood was very strong not to bring him in and that he's doing the company far more benefit as a cancer in the other locker room. So I'm curious, JR. I, first of all, there's a lot going on in WCW. We're going to talk about that in a minute, but the idea that Nash might be available and you guys don't want him, that sort of jumps well, off not, the
1: page. Not every, not everybody didn't want him. Uh and, you know, I I'll be fully transparent here. Kevin Nash has been a friend of mine since I met him uh uh at the uh, the Cheetah when he was he was a bouncer. <laughs> gentlemen's club in Atlanta. So I've known Kevin for long before he got in wrestling business. Uh, I think Jerry Briscoe may have introduced him to me, but you know, play, playing you know, seven, a guy that's a good looking guy. That's got a, 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 athletic body. That's seven feet tall. You can't just not look yeah. if you believe that he has a, the, he did have the, he had the look, the appearance of a star and he had the desire to leave the the bar business, the gentleman's club business and, uh, get into wrestling. Uh, so, you know, we, we had always had an interesting Kevin, uh, in that regard, but some people just Kevin's a, Kevin's uh, Kevin a very, very intelligent guy. And sometimes in certain circles, when you know, you're a your guy you're talking to, or is a, is you're, he's smarter than you. It makes some people uncomfortable. And so if you're in a creative vein. In the creative world and he fit something to a talent thinking that because they're naive, they're insecure, they don't want to say no because they might get in trouble it might make them look bad perception 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 uh, and Kevin was the kind of guy that would speak up. oh if we did that it's going to do this and why don't we heres we could do this and get the same deal done whatever he had ideas and some people were intimidated by that. So there were some on the creative side that had bad experiences with Kevin in the past apparently. Uh, I had no issues with it. Here's the deal. Bottom line at the end of the day, if Vince wants him there, guess what? JR's gonna hire him. I ain't gonna ask nobody. I ain't gonna poll the creative guys. Hey, what are you a pimply faced little jerk off? gonna think about me bringing Kevin Nash in? Oh, by the way, it doesn't matter what you think because Vince is already want me is gonna have me already wants me to sign him. But Kevin was a, Kevin was a keeper. He he helped us a lot, in my opinion. He's a Hall of Fame guy. But he did, he was outspoken. He still is outspoken. He's a great follow on Twitter, by the way. because he's, he has a lot of multiple, uh, you know, multiple interests. So I, the team were just very intimidated by his intellect. I think in a lot of ways and then it all became his intellect became his attitude and that's what the difference is. So you're challenged by a guy's intellect. You can say, well, he's got a bad attitude. Oh, why? It's cause he's smarter than you. And that basically was it. So. Kevin was uh, a controversial figure at that time. And a lot of people have bad memories, but you know, anytime you get a guy with name, identity box office, seven feet athletic, uh, you don't just turn your backside. We don't want to do that. He, he might be a little higher maintenance than we're used to working with.
0: Let's talk about the other thing that's happening in WCW. It is a mass exodus. Meltzer would report WCW sent unconditional release letters to Chris Benoit, Dean Malenko, Conan. Shane Douglas, Eddie Guerrero, and Perry Saturn on January 19th. And I guess here, technically the release would allow them to start with Titan on February 1st, provided they agree to not say anything publicly disparaging about WCW and agree not to sue WCW. And after both sides sign the releases and they're executed on the 25th, it's believed that uh, Benoit and Malenko and Guerrero and Saturn are all free to start with Titan as soon as this coming week. Uh, allegedly, um, Conan and, and Shane Douglas maybe had a change of heart, didn't sign the release, etc., etc. I think Shane called Steve Austin to get word to Vince McMahon, if he was interested and, uh, we know that didn't actually happen. Talk to me a little bit about when you hear there's a mass exodus and how all that comes together for these guys to show up. On WWF TV.
1: Well, this the, the word gets out because you know, the old expression, telephone, telegraph, tell a wrestler. So nothing that went on down there. And I share the same th- thing with our place, specifically, uh, was a secret. Uh, and those guys were tired of being, uh, looked upon as you, none of you guys are six feet tall, uh, you're undersized and guys, your height. Uh, your size will not draw money because nobody will believe that you're really good or you're really tough or whatever. So, uh, man, when I heard, uh, those four guys were, were going to could be available, I, I, uh, I got very interested in that situation. And so therefore we conduct, we had, a, we brought them to Vince's house. Uh, you know, or, or we brought them to, to, uh, Greenwich. We brought them. To, they stayed in Stanford. Uh, but look, I was a major fan of all those guys for different reasons. Saturn was the irreverent one, uh, and uh, the most you know unique cat, probably of the group. Uh, Dean Malenko could wrestle and have a great match with anybody alive. He's a great coach now for AEW, and he had just a, all that was just the knowledge, the whole thing. And, you know he's 5'8 or 5'9, whatever the hell he is. Uh, and then he had Eddie and Chris. And that's where the rubber met the road. Because in those two guys, in my opinion, as the EVP of Talent Relations, those were two men that were as good as any two in-ring performers in the world. That covers a lot of territory. That's a big territory. Yeah. Uh, and they both were different. But they both were extraordinary in ring performers. And again, no matter if you had a young roster or veterans, the match with Benoit and or Jericho, sticking of those two specifically, was going to be great. And uh I just I c I couldn't believe, I, I really couldn't believe that WCW is allowing that to happen. Without any compensation, without you know, we didn't trade anybody, we didn't give them any money, we didn't do anything. We sat back and all the papers were signed. They got released, and hell, we were ready. I'd have signed them in two minutes later if you know if you, could, if you could have physically done it. But man, it was a big gift for us. Those the radicals sitting at ringside. I still remember that sitting at ringside, and there they are. And uh, man, and look at how great Eddie became, and and Chris. Unfortunately, Chris's legacy, as I uh, mentioned, is going to be always be t- tainted because of the last 48 hours or so of his life and the murder suicide and all the sad, horror, horrific things. But if you can, if you, if you have the ability just to table that for a second, just for a second and go back and look at his in-ring work, how great was Chris Benoit? Pretty damned amazing. And then there was Eddie Guerrero who, you know, I compare, uh, Santa Guevara to young Eddie Guerrero all the time on TV on Wednesday nights, because he, he has the same cocky, confident attitude and also Latino that Eddie had. So I, I just thought the world of all those guys, Conrad, and they, they were big gifts for us. They really, truly were. They were not hard to negotiate with. They were, they were given fair prices or fair deals. They all, we signed them within, with, within a week. They are all signed, I believe. So I, I uh, and the same old bullshit, you get the, the, some guys in, in, the, in the front office, man, they're all small. How are they, they're going to draw any money, they're all small. So I, you know, I tell them, I said, you guys are so experienced. I long have you been the rest of the minutes. Two years. I've been around three years. Oh, good for you. So you're saying that because you've heard Vince say it, right? Right. Do you have any idea why he said it? Or you just, you take it at face value because that goes for everybody. It doesn't go for everybody, fellas. Every now and then you get, I said, why don't you guys go do some research? Tell me how tall Dick the Bruiser was. Tell me how tall Vern Gagne was. Tell me how tall uh, Buddy Rogers was. Jim Londis. You know, the, the, uh, the briscoes, six feet, six, one, maybe. So it's just, it's, it's bullshit. So nonetheless, that was, I, I, that was a monumental day for me in my career to get those four guys name on paper for us.
0: Let's talk about the two guys who aren't signed. Conan, Shane Douglas, Shane in particular has some real hurt feelings. He's supposedly, you know, he's with, uh, all these guys on the WCW faction, the revolution. And, uh, they had all sort of made this pact that we we're all going to go together. The rumor and innuendo was some of these guys who hadn't been to the company felt like maybe Shane had a little bit of stink on him and he may actually hurt their leverage and ability to get a deal. If they really do try to stick together to the point that they all make plans to go to Connecticut and don't tell Shane. And when Shane hears about it, he calls Malenko's cell phone. Malenko denies it and says, no, I'm at my brother's in Florida. But then he knows what hotel that the company would put talent up. So he calls the hotel and sure enough, all four have reservations there. Even when he tries to press Malenko on it, Malenko still k-fabes him because Vince and Jr. allegedly had told him to keep it quiet. So ultimately Shane doesn't wind up coming in ever again for the company. And a lot of people want to know, Hey, what's up with that? Everybody made some sort of comeback, whether it was the ultimate warrior or it was Uh, you know, Brent Hart, anybody who left on bad terms, still found a way to sort of mend those fences and get back. Shane Douglas feels like the exception to that. Why would that be?
1: Well, I think he got bad advice of his lawyer. First of all, he didn't sign his release. And if he's still under contract Conrad, I I can't, I can't go talk to him officially about a deal. You, You, if you're un, if you're unencumbered as the other guys were because their lawyer didn't give them that advice. So they became free agents, immediate free agents, and we grabbed them up. I believe, and at least this how I would. This is what I would have done. I would have signed uh, Shane Douglas in a heartbeat, but I can't do a damn thing until he's released, until he's free and clear to go. Uh, but I think got some bad advice. And the thing about Shane, and I'm sure he still gets his feathers ruffled with this whole uh, endeavor, I'd like to say, hey, look, I've been pissed off at, different things in my career as well. And some were right, rightfully so deals and some were not. Some are my ego deals. Uh, but I, I like Shane's game. He's a, he's talented, but I think his biggest enemy was him. Sometimes he's second, you know, he had, he's a very intelligent guy. And sometimes those intelligent guys, uh, go down a road that they don't need to be traveling and they get too down far down the road. and They can't turn around. I think that was kind of what the situation here was, you know, he was very outspoken about his negativity for WWE at various times. He didn't do himself any favors, but the when the, the time, uh, to strike was when the other guys were getting their releases and coming in. And I fully believe that, uh, between their endorsement and mine, that Vince would have hired, would want me to hire him. It just didn't work out. It is unfortunate. He had a very lousy experience the first time is Dean Douglas and that was bullshit. That was not his fault, but it was, uh, you know, he was not, uh, he wasn't popular with the other kids, you know, for, so to speak, but I don't, I, I feel badly about that situation, but you know, time goes on and you got to move on and hopefully he's moved on with this situation. I've seen him a few places since then. You know, obviously we well, always cordial. He's a nice guy. He's from Jan's hometown of Pittsburgh. He got that Pittsburgh uh, wrestling background, you know, the, the, the great Bruno Sammartino established all those dudes, Dominic Nucci and all those cats. So he's just, I don't know, man. It's just, it was a bad timing and, and he got on the wrong side of the wrong people, that person, it, those people were not me. I can promise you that.
0: What about Conan? Conan's a guy who these days, it feels like he has 42 jobs. He, he works with every wrestling promotion under the sun, except WWE. He had a brief little run there a long time prior to this, but yep. never pops up again. Why do you think that is?
1: I think his first run was considered less than successful. And sometimes when creative makes a miscue, uh, they blame it on the talent. And I think, uh, Charles Conan, Carlos, great friend of mine, uh, was, uh, kind of subjected to that he's got, a, Carlos has got a great mind. He's very, very intelligent his father's a lawyer, uh, and he's got a, And he he's a great liaison. If you want to be diversified and you're going to increase your Latino, uh, populace in your company, it's hard to beat him as your guide to talk to talent and work out finishes and things of that nature. But that, that's a story there. I just think that his first deal that Mac, what were was the mass deal he had. I don't know. It didn't work. And so instead of just saying, well, it was, it was an ill-fated idea. The talent did his job. We just didn't do ours. I never heard that discussion made in that regard. So, uh, and WWE missed a good guy there. It's they just, missed a guy that could have been a real contributor.
0: It feels weird that he's never even been back to work behind the scenes. I mean, you guys gave. Shit gimmicks to guys like Glenn Jacobs, that you know, didn't get over, but he still had an opportunity to come back and try something different. And eventually it hit. And clearly that happened for Conan you know, in WCW where he had a much different presentation than max moon or whatever silliness was tried yep. with Titan, but behind the scenes, to your point, you know, if he is this well-respected, great mind for the biz, it feels like, man, there would have been a spot for him somewhere. Do you think he just wasn't a WWE type guy?
1: It just maybe, maybe polished, but that's the thing about until you get to know the guy, you don't realize just how intelligent that he is. And I don't think anybody took the time to get to know Charles. I give him about three names here. His real name is Charles. Sure. I call him Carlos. He told me when. Told me on the cruise last year. My friends call me Carlos Jr. I said, "Okay, Carlos, we bonded right there. I'm his friend now. He's my friend, and I and I I, I, I am very proud of that friendship. But he has a lot to offer any company because not so much in the ring anymore. Sure, but is mine. He's a play caller and he can help call good plays and help make uh, stars better, all stars, but certainly he can communicate best with uh, many of the young Latino stars because many of them grew up idolizing him. That's like these kids at uh, Adam Cole, those guys at uh, the NXT, those guys talk about how great it is to have Shawn Michaels around. Guess why? He's a great teacher and they grew up idolizing him, right? So he does, he has, he doesn't have to convince them that what he's telling them is the right thing to do. They know it's the right thing to do because they have seen him do it and execute it and be successful. So I, the same thing holds true for, for, uh, Conan and his, uh, his, uh, uh, luchador friends. So yeah, good guy, man. I, he, and like you said a while ago, he does seem like he's got about a hundred jobs. He's he doesn't lack for work.
0: No, I mean that's the thing. He's working with literally every promotion but WWE in some capacity. Let's talk about Sable. Uh Wade Keller would report that Playboy has settled its lawsuit brought by the WWF over the use of the name Sable and promoting Rena Mero's second photo spread. Playboy was said to have made an undisclosed cash payment to the WWF and will provide some free advertising and royalties from future sales of the issue. And in September, a federal judge ruled that the magazine was wrong to use the WWF trademark moniker Sable in promoting the issue after Marrow was no longer associated with the WWF. What do you remember about this? This is, uh, another weird deal where, you know, Sable's out of here, but we're still dealing with it.
1: Oh, big old pissing contest. Probably was a lack of communication. Could have probably solved all those issues without having to have a lawsuit and have legal fees and bad publicity if that, if you want to perceive it to be that way, uh, at WWE, we were right all along in that deal. There was no, I think playboy just thought that they didn't do their due diligence. Uh, they thought that because one of their former stars is on the, again, on the cover of playboy, that was going to be good for our business. And that may, may have been right on that deal. It's just the fact that simply legally, they didn't have the right to utilize the trademark owned by WWE. Arena did not own Sable. WWE owned Sable. So if you're going to use our character name, you need to pay us something. And so they worked it out. And I think that settlement was done pretty damn quick. I don't think Playboy, they realized the error of their ways. But here's the other thing about that. She shou- sold sold, I suck that lady in that commercial. My she had burnt down, Sheila. Uh I think that uh Records. She set records. Oh my God! Yeah, and
0: it's it's interesting because you guys' association with Playboy would continue for years and years. I mean, I think you had folks appearing in it as late as like '08. So um, the partnership would continue. Something that didn't continue though is the WWF nightclub. We should mention that uh, it opened around this same time, and Wade would report that uh, the festivity started at 6:30 on a Wednesday. And the entrance to the party was by invitation only, but it included all of the company employees and their families and sponsors and their families. And of course, the local media and celebrities. And there's lots of uh, traffic siphoned off uh, where people can sort of gather around the area where they're not invited. They just want to sort of be around. There's an open bar and catered food and it's a who's who. Of course, the McMahon family's there and you're there and Jericho's there and Angle's there. What do you remember about this, uh, this big idea that ultimately we know wound up not being a successful one?
1: The sad part about the idea was that it should have made money. I think it did make money for a little while. Uh, the general manager of the club, you know, was caught embezzling a lot of money. Uh, went to Rockers Island, uh, had extended stay there. Uh, so there were issues in, in management. Uh, which failed the, the situation, great location. Hey, the location is still hanging and banging. It's just under another name. Uh, um, and, and, uh, you know, you're here, you are downtown New York city or times square, it just had bad management. But I think the concept, the idea, uh, unless it, the rent and everything was so prohibitive that it was never going to be successful. I don't know that. But I think the management of it and then losing all that capital, that cash, uh, hundreds of thousands of dollars before they realized it. Uh, but I remember it being a, a real fun party atmosphere. People put on their little party clothes and are having fun. And it was a, a day, a night off and being in New York the, you know, hot and cold running limos. And, and the, like you said, the media was there, there were stars there. I remember Joan London was there from uh, good morning America. She's a big fan still is. And the late Luther Vandross was there, and Luther loved the guys, and he loved wrestling. Sure, And right. he, he, And right. the women loved Luther because Luther. I remember Luther talking to my wife Jan about fashion, and the fact that they. And they're both passed now, as we know. Uh, but Jan was a big uh, Louis Vuitton was one of her big brands, and uh, they t- Luke they called him had 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 knowledge of all that stuff as much as any woman. And so he became one of the favorites of the Divas and of some of the wives, including mine at that time. But it was a fun time, Conrad. Festive, fun, amazing food. Uh, You know, the open bar never hurts anything. You know, three or four drinks, three or four trips to the open bar makes all food taste better. So, uh, but it was fun. You know, we had, it was a fun, festive party night, kind of simple, you know, a little exposure for the guys. But I think everybody had a good time. I had a great time that night because I knew that my talents were enjoying themselves, uh, it looked like another nice investment for the company. Uh, and, uh, I had a 30 minute car ride home. So it was pretty cool. And by the way, the next morning I was in my office at 9. AM. Let's get to the show,
0: man. Royal rumble 2000, man. I love the open to this show. I love the way MSG looks. I like the set that they do here and we have got Kurt angle coming out to, uh, well, a welcome that only New York city could give him. He's on an undefeated streak. He's out here preaching positivity and he's got his three eyes and man, that white meat, baby face stuff. New York wants nothing to do with it. <laughs> and then we get to learn who the mystery opponent is. And when that music hits and the audience realizes that this is their hometown guy, Taz, the crowd goes nuts.
1: Yeah. One of the biggest Taz earned one of the biggest ovations that I'd ever heard in the garden from anybody in WWE in my career. There, there are times I remember when Austin came back. I remember when triple H came back, a lot of, a lot of guys returning that we can go back on and say, well, that was a big pop. They they all were, you're right. But nothing I ever heard from a brand new guy that had never worked in uh, WWE before, uh, overshadows what Taz did. I know for him personally, and congratulations on Taz, he signed a long-term contract to broadcast on AEW. Uh, and, of course, we got renewed by TNT to, through 2023, which is great for me because I was always wondering what I was going to do when I got past 70. <laughs> I want to work. Uh, so hopefully I'll get that opportunity. That's good for the company. Uh, and Taz is there now, so it's good for us to have a quality guy on our team. But man, he got the, the audience went nuts. It, they went nuts. And the beauty of this match, here's the irony of this thing. We ain't got Austin there. We, we got a match. that went three minutes and 16 seconds between Taz and, and, and Kurt. <laughs> By so, the way,
0: the, the, the crowd goes bananas oh, and they're chanting oh. while, while Kurt's trying to do the promo and really piss off all the fans. There's already a, we want Taz chant. Even though you guys had been denying online on the website, uh, that, that it was not Taz and he would not be the mystery opponent, they're ready for it. And when he comes out, huge ovation, big ECW chant, uh, Meltzer would say angle looked like a total superstar coming out. Everything they did was really good, with a lot of good suplexes thrown in, but they were so rushed. They were doing near falls before anyone even cared about the match. Mm-hmm. Angle took a great backdrop over the top rope. And one time landed almost on his head from a suplex And after the suplex on his head, Taz delivered a head and arm suplex and a T-bone suplex before putting on the choke and the ref stopped the match. And they were doing the gimmick, whether or not it's a choke or a sleeper. Right. Angle in his post-match interview, didn't know what happened. Still thought he was undefeated. This has been talked about a lot, by the way, Meltzer gave the match two stars, but Taz does not look back at this moment very fondly. Uh, He, he said that he felt like. You know, when he hears the pop from the crowd, he thought, oh no, I'm screwed. And this is wrestlers getting in their own head because he thought this wasn't their creation. I'm over before they want me to be over. Oh God, this is not
1: ideal. And that's, he might, he might have overthought that a little bit, Conrad, to be honest with you.
0: Well, here's the other thing. You guys on commentary are debating as to whether or not his, his finisher is even legal right is it a sleeper is it a choke I mean, right. is, I mean i understand if i'm a wrestler and i'm a new guy and everybody's sort of looking over their shoulder anyway paranoia is real in wrestling but if you were him you've got to be thinking when you when you see and hear that uh hey are they really trying to help me and then the next day uh he, he gets a phone call and i think when he shows up to uh, the building immediately. Vince and Paul and uh, not Paul, but Vince and Bruce want to meet with him and and tell him that he's dangerous and that he's not going to be dropping guys on their head here and that's not what they do. And I think Taz would say this was really just a miscommunication in the match where you know Kurt was trying to help him out on the suplex and he jumped a little bit and Taz didn't uh-huh. want guys to do that. He wanted to just muscle him up himself and and he could do it and. Felt like he had better control when he was in total control. So he sits him down and starts to move over again. It's even though the, the, the reaction from the fans are there, Taz looks back at this and thinks, man, I was fucked from day one. What's your reaction to that?
1: Well, I think it's over. He had a little overreaction there when he heard, heard the crowd pop. Uh, there's no way as a talent or someone that's involved in talent management, that I'm going to look at a great pop like that as a negative. I think he overreacted there, in my opinion. Uh, I do remember uh, there were moments in the match. And look, Taz didn't do those moves, the suplexes, a cappella. Kurt was taking them. Kurt was a little bit daredevilish. It takes two to tango in these scenarios. But there's no doubt that there was some release-type suplexes, some things going on that we had not had a lot of in WWE and the reason for that cause they're not totally safe. Uh, and you've got to have a guy that knows, that knows how to take the bumps that, you know, is prepared for it. There were moments in that three minute and 16 second match that, you know, somebody could foresee that, that Kurt was just going along to try to help Taz, but he was acquiescing to unsafe moves. Uh, and you, you can't throw guys on their head. You can't. And so I, I don't know if that's anybody's fault could be nerves. It could be not as bad as people thought, but look, he's a, Taz was a difference maker, I I remember, I can see in my mind as we speak right this very minute that my secretary handed me a, a note from a phone message from Pete, Peter Cernicia. So I, the first thing I say, who the fuck is Peter Cernicia? Well, he said he, you, you'd know who he was. He's a, he's a, he's one of the, he's one of the boys. So hell, I didn't have any idea who Peterson each was. I knew his real name. I certainly I I who Taz was, but I didn't know Taz, what Taz real name. So, uh, I, I did some, 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 uh, investigative work and oh, that's Taz. And Taz is very leery, very Taz is still, you know, he's a very, he's, he gets unsettled to damn deeds. I, I kid him about it. Uh, so that was the deal. He, he just. I think he was a little bit paranoid. He still is paranoid in a lot of ways. Uh, he shouldn't be, he should be, he should be sure of himself. He's got great ability, but I think that whole thing was kind of blown out of proportion and I don't know how comfortable he was once he got with us. And then I can tell you that not too long after that, he tore his pec. I think a tricep, he tore something and he was concerned. I remember Bruce and I talking to him. I said, look, we're here. You're going to, we're not going to turn you loose. We're going to pay for your surgery. We're going to pay your weekly until you, you know, while you're healing. And then we'll hope to get you back to work. And, uh, that was the bottom line of that deal. We weren't going to screw you around. We're not going to screw you around and we didn't, but he had never been in an environment like that. He felt totally that he was going to be protected and taken care of. But he, a lot of guys didn't like Taz because he got over at five, eight. And again, it's that same old deal of uh size matters. And, and if you're, if you're. If you're six three or four, you're going to endorse that or all you can because you want Vince to not change his philosophy. But he goddamn sure changed his philosophy during this whole period of time because we got Taz in there, we got Benoit, we got Malenko, Saturn, and lovable, God bless him, Eddie. And none of them were six feet tall. So a lot of things happened that was going against the grain of uh, some of the power brokers behind the scenes and certainly some of the creative guys that heard Vince say over and over. He's too short. He's too short and he got to be bigger. We got to be bigger. You got to be able to project. And so they bought it. And so a lot of those guys were always on the other side of the short guys. I was recruiting.
0: We should mention this is a, a pretty important moment in Taz's wrestling career. This a ton of WWE DVD somewhere where he says something like when he broke into wrestling, he had three goals you know, one to make a living in wrestling, two to hold any championship belt, and three to wrestle in the garden. And this sort of, you know, finishes his last goal. And he sort of overcome with that on his ride to the building. And he talked about that on, I think it was the rise and fall of ECW, where he talks about calling Paul Heyman, where things didn't exactly go as planned. He hadn't been on the best terms with Paul on the exit, but. He handled his business and and now he's overcome with emotion and wants to call and talk to him on the way in. And he's about to wrestle an Olympic gold medalist and hand that gold medalist, his first defeat in the garden. And you're debuting at the first million dollar gate in the history of WWE and Madison square garden, big moment. So go back and watch this. This is a a really special moment in wrestling history. Uh, But the next match, man, it's another barn burner. And, and this is worth the price of admission here. It's the Hardy boys and the Dudley's are doing a double tables match. The rule here is you've got to put both members through a table. And again, we're not getting a lot of time, but we're making the most of our time, 10 minutes, 18 seconds. Meltzer gives it three and a quarter stars. I absolutely love it. The big spot here, of course, is, uh, we've got Bubba taking the nasty plunge backwards off the balcony through a bunch of tables. We've also seen. Uh, Jeff Hardy, do the big dive off the top, just really a remarkable match. And this crowd is ready for it. They're hot. And, and the crowd really adds a lot to this match. I loved it. Watching it back was a real treat.
1: All four of those guys have the ability and still do in a large sense, in my view, to connect with the audience. They know their role. They knew what, what they positioned on the team they were playing and they got it. Uh, and you know, I hope Jeff gets back on track. But it, getting back in the wrestling business full time is not good for his health. He should he should pass. That's just a good old JR's advice. It ain't your obligation to get back on the front line if it's not doing yourself any favors. Matt Hardy's one of the great minds in wrestling, in my view. I think Matt Hardy could help a lot of people, uh, and he should be able to help a lot of people. You know, these two kids, I, I signed them. The Hardy Boys and you know, one of the neat stories they told me that they were raised by a single father who was a male rural mail carrier, and uh that they made their own uh wrestling gear off of an old sewing machine. It's I guess their mom might have had at one time. They made their own gear, teenagers. And uh they weren't big muscle guys, which we all remember, but god dang they had great passion and they had amazing courage. So they were special. And uh, Matt's really special now, and I, I'd love to work with Matt again someday, uh, and hopefully I will. Uh, but Bubba, you know, you hear Bubba's great work on Busted Open with Dave Lagrek and all those cats. Uh, he Bubba's got a great mind, and between Bubba and Matt, not discounting the other two guys, but between Bubba and Matt, you had two, what I believe, could be great bookers, uh, calling the shots of their match, and they made those matches extraordinary. So you're right, Conrad. I, you know, Meltzer gives it a three uh, stars and a quarter. I, I might, like, I might venture to say he might have been a little low on that.
0: Yep, I would agree. Really, a special match. Go out of your way to see this one. Uh, it's just fantastic, and uh, these guys, you know, are hitting on all cylinders here. Next up is something interesting that we could probably not ever see again. Uh, it's a Miss Royal Rumble bikini contest, and. It was pretty strongly promoted leading into this that there were going to be judges, including Edge and Freddie Blassie. It turns out that there's no Edge, no mention of him whatsoever. Instead, the judges wind up being Freddie Blassie, Sergeant Slaughter, Tony Gurria, Fabulous Moolah, uh, Johnny V, and Andy Richter from The Conan O'Brien Show. Ivory comes out. Uh, Terry's here. Uh, Jacqueline is doing her thing. Uh, BB who a lot of people may have forgotten. You'll be reminded when you see her. She's Um, great. Luna's here. um, Cat's here. And Meltzer's pretty critical. He says, Ivory came out looking like a mid thirties woman, bodybuilder with implants, which is basically what she is. Terry came out. And
1: and, and is that so bad? No. Is that bad? No. Did they mean that to be a knock or just an overall observation? Because Ivory fulfilled, she, she did so much good stuff for us. It's amazing. She took, uh, ex- she was an experienced skill worker, just like Jackie Moore. And they took their time and their patience to make a lot of these young divas, uh, passable in the ring. So Ivory was a, well, what a MVP she was as was, it was uh, Jackie. But when I read that, you know, about that, that deal and, uh, how he described that, I said, well, is, is that wrong? You know,
0: come on. He would also write, Terry came out in a very skimpy one piece. Jacqueline did a total stripper routine. Maybe didn't get the pop you'd think. Lana refused, or Lana, pardon me. Luna refused to disrobe and appeared to be very unhappy about even being a part of this, which I'm presuming is probably more storyline than anything. Cat, who was the only one in the group who had a body that didn't look like it was created by science, came out wearing a bikini made out of air bubbles, that you would mail things in
1: that was Lawler's idea, by the way,
0: uh, Mae young came out, removed her top and was declared the unanimous winner. <laughs> uh, this is, I mean, my goodness, what a segment, what an era. Um, what do you remember about this? And
1: strictly comedy It's yeah. said, let me up match as Vince used to say, uh, you know, because we're getting ready to get some, the, some more heavy duty wrestling. And he didn't want all wrestling on a wrestling show. He, he, he really worked hard to make sure that we had entertainment content within. And when you have a primary, your primary demographic are males 18 to 49 and uh, 18 to 34, then the, the, uh, bikini contest seemed to be catering to them as it should. So it just let me up a comedy, uh, you know just see what everybody's wearing and was kind of cool. And of course the star of the show was may young and why not?
0: Uh, I do not hate this next match though. Uh, because it's just weird. It's Chris Jericho in a three-way with China and Bob Holly. And this is a wrestling match, not a porn. Uh, Meltzer would say, can you (laughs) imagine what kind of a physique Holly would have if he actually took steroids, China ruined the match. There were only a few points where the fans booed her weak offense, but clearly they weren't happy with the prospect of her as champ. The gimmick of her in the ring as a title contender has now run its course. The finish made me think they realized it, but after the rumble, you can see Jericho still going to be married to her with the way they're booking. Married might actually be the apropos word. Jericho had the walls on Holly and China made the save with a weak clothesline and the crowd booed heavily. China then used a pedigree on Holly, but he kicked out. Jericho does a crossbody off the top while China was on Holly's shoulders, but she kicks out, and then China superplexed Holly off the top, and after a few near falls, China gets the Boston Crab on Holly, and the crowd is booing heavily. Jericho does the run in, breaks it up, and gives a face buster and cubrada for the pin. Even though Jericho did the coolest moves in the ring, Holly is actually the best worker of this trio. Star in a quarter. Leading into this China and Jericho had been together for months. I mean, back at even survivor series, when China was the intercontinental champ, she beats Jericho. She loses the title to him the following month at Armageddon. They're facing off on the last SmackDown of the year where they're both pinning each other. And as a result, they're become co-champions. They briefly team up for a little bit and I don't know. Meltzer didn't love it, and certainly the fans in the crowd didn't love it that night. Do you think this was just a failed experiment, China in here with the men?
1: Experiment? I don't know. I didn't love it either. I thought it was. Uh, I don't like. You know, this is going to piss some people off, and don't. And so you can be pissed off if you choose. I'm at JRSBBQ, so tweet away. I know I don't have a problem with it because your opinion is just as viable as mine. My opinion is. I'm not a fan of intergender wrestling. Well, he didn't like Tessa Blanchard. No, I love Tessa Blanchard. I've known Tessa Blanchard since she was a little girl. Uh, I'm great friends with her, with her father. I was great friends with her grandfather, Joe Blanchard. So I got a lot of respect for the Blanchard family. This has nothing to do with Tessa per se. It has to do with the booking of intergender matches, and you can bet with the success that she has earned. Uh, in, in impact wrestling, there'll be other promotions or other, and Indies that will try to do replicate that while the t- strike with the iron's hot. So to speak, I'm just not, I think it's unrealistic. I've had these talks, I had long talks and some were very stern with Joni who always took this shit personally. Well, you just don't want the women to get over it. No, I, that's stupid. Joni, Joni, that's not, that makes no sense. Why would I even want that? Look at it. What do I do for a living here? To get stars over. So we work on, I think it's a short term deal. It's a hot-shot booking and it's an eye roller because it's really not that realistic. And boy, I remember when she, uh, we talked to her about, uh, wrestling, you know, being the women's champion, she could be our Hogan in that division. Oh, she didn't want to do that because she didn't want to wrestle with the other women. You know why that was true? Because most, a lot of the other women like Jackie Moore and like Ivory were better workers in China. China had the look, the feel, the appeal, the charisma that the others didn't quite have because of her size. But the intergender thing was a pain in the ass. Uh, I, it was just, I, I, even the boys said, God, how long are we going to do this? Uh, the, the guy said, I don't want, I'm not going to sell for, I am not going to do this. Well, you know, of course you're getting paid. You'll do what the hell you need to do to earn your money, but it's not, a, it wasn't a good thing. The booking wasn't good. And they has got nothing to do with Chris Jericho. I love Chris Jericho. He's the AEW champion. He's, he's the he's the, he's the, uh, reverend of reinvention. And, but it just was a loser from the start, the get go, but he had to endure it. And, and he went through it. Hey, Chris Jericho almost had to reinvent himself again, then to pull this stuff off because it's, it just was illogical and didn't make a lot of sense to me. So if I haven't pissed all of you off that love the intergender stuff, you should love it. If that's what you like, then like it. I'm not trying to change your mind. I'm just telling you my opinion. I don't think it's realistic. And there's, you know, never everybody knows. There's no, it was just, it was like powder puff stuff. I just, I just didn't, I didn't like it. And, and I don't think it, and of course you heard the crowd in the garden, as you said, Conrad, they didn't like it. They shit on it. And you got Hall of Fame talent in the ring. They got doo-dooed on and because the fans didn't like the concept.
0: What do you think of, uh, putting Bob Holly in the mix? I mean, so far it's really been the Jericho China show and somebody
1: had to lose. Okay. He was a designated, uh, uh, drop, fall dropper in that one. And, uh, it is also there, were, there are a lot of guys in the success of WWE, uh, during the attitude era and the, and the, around that era, around that time. That there are unsung heroes. Bob Holly was one of those unsung heroes. You know, he, uh, he, he always showed up for work, ready to work his ass off. And to would be the toughest guy on the card. And I love that attitude. I love that attitude, but there are a lot of other dudes that were on that roster as well, that were kind of unsung. They filled in gaps, they filled in voids. And on this night, uh, the WWE needed someone to drop the fall in that match and they didn't want to beat Jericho or China. So Bobby Holly was the designate and he did a great job doing it.
0: Well, let's talk about this match again, though, because Jericho, as we get back to this three-way, i match has talked about being in a spot where he's supposed to give China a bulldog and somehow he forgets where he's at and he just draws yeah. a complete blank. And so he's just sort of standing there in the ring, trying to remember what exactly they had planned ahead of time. Now. I want to be clear. That's not typical for what Jericho does. But oh. these matches with China, they had to lay out, you know, oh. A, B, C, D, E, hey. F, G, oh. and so it just wasn't registering. And improv is out of the question. So se- <laughs> finally, Bob Holly yells "Bulldogger, dumbass!" in Jericho's <laughs> direction, and he wrote, "If Holly hadn't said anything, I'd still be standing, be standing there, trying to figure out what the hell to do." So a fun moment in the match when you know that story and you go back and watch it. Cause you see it and it's hysterical and it's also pretty funny when we see the rock do an interview and, uh, he's doing something about a glass of shut up juice here, the rock can do no wrong. He is by far the brightest star in wrestling here in January of 2000. And in a weird way, the timing couldn't be any better because without Austin around it allows rock to shine even a little brighter.
1: It's all about death, baby. And rock and Austin, the, the. Most amazing one, two punch that I would suggest ever in the history of the business. Uh, and, uh, God dang, I, I, I go through my photos. Sometimes there's a picture at at a WrestleMania. I can't remember when it was, it was, you know, last five, six years, I believe, uh, with me standing between rock and Austin. It's probably my most cherished picture because, uh, it showed me with my two Two of my star signees. And I'm not knocking all the other guys I signed. They're Hall of Fame guys, the Cena's, Lesnar's, all these dudes. Not at all. But you got to admit, Conrad, I think you probably would agree with this. Rock and Austin are a different level. Oh, yeah. And that has been a blessing. It was a blessing. And it seems to be a curse right now because WWE can't find or get another talent over. Like Austin and rock were, Yeah. and until that happens and talents break through and create their own way, uh, and reestablish their own TV persona, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, they're going to be where they are in that regard, which is not bad. Don't get me wrong, but it's not the automatic sellouts. You know, we go back to this garden show, this garden show had 19,000 and change in the building sold out. Our friend, Raphael Murphy was a promoter of that event. Uh, it, it was a boom. It sold out. Big money, as, you, as we know, one point one million, and now that's not the case. It's not an automatic sellout in the Garden, and the reason for that is the Garden is attraction-driven, like most major markets. The Garden may be more so than any other attraction-driven, meaning the fans that come to the Garden want to see what they perceive to be legitimate superstars. Yep, Austin and Rock fill that bill,
0: no doubt. Let's talk about the next match here filled with hall of famers, new age outlaws in there with the acolytes. They only get two minutes and 35 seconds. Meltzer would say total rush job acolytes hit their winning moves immediately. And referee Tim white was pulled out of the ring when Farouk had road dog pinned X-Pac does a run in when the ref isn't looking, gives Bradshaw a spinning heel kick and Billy gun pins him with the famous her dud. So you've got you know, the new age outlaws are over like nobody's business. The acolytes at this point are well-established badasses. I mean, in real life and on screen, but they only get two minutes and 35 seconds. Uh, A real rush job here. Why so quick? Did you guys think that you had too much on this card? I mean, the three day IC only gets seven minutes, the tag tables only gets 10 minutes, Taz and angle only get three minutes. It feels like there's just way too much stuff because some of these matches just aren't given any time
1: over book card, trying to get everybody that we could on it, which I find ironic because you got, uh, a, a zillion folks in the, in the Royal Rumble match, right? Anybody that needed to be booked could have been booked through the vehicle of the Royal Rumble match, instead of throwing some obligatory matches out there that had uh, no time to develop a story. If you don't have time to develop a story, then why are you doing the match? Uh, you know why? It's sure as hell don't let a promoter tell you What's well, cause for benevolent bullshit? It was a miscue, uh, and it was overbooked, and and I uh, and that was and that's what it was. Because when you get to a certain part of the show, you know when you got to be off the air on on your uh, satellite time. You know you're you're dropped dead. We got to be off the air blank. And I think knowing what we had coming up, including the Royal Rumble match, including triple H and Mick Foley, uh, that they needed the time to transact their business. The show was overwritten. You get midway through and shit starts getting cut. And, uh, these guys are probably lucky. They even made air, but they go in, they bam, bam. Thank you, ma'am. Two minutes and 35 seconds. It was, uh, it was the fate was, it was going to be deemed a dud by most. And I think the audience would have been very happy if it had been longer. So good, a better story, all good talents, uh, into entertaining, physical, skilled, no time because they had to save. they had to make sure they had the time for the rumble and for triple H and Foley for sure.
0: It's just weird because I feel like, you know, to your point, you know, some of this stuff, we could have just very, the, the, the McKinney match didn't have to be here, but I understand the placement, um, uh, but yeah, you could have just taken this tag title match off, but maybe you think you need it. And at this point people have seen, you know, in hindsight, the China thing, not being on here, wouldn't have hurt anybody. And it sort of is what it is, but I tell you what, it's all worth it for the next match. It's a street fight for the world title. Triple H defending against cactus Jack. Uh, these guys have feuded for a long, long time. Back in 1997, uh, we would see, uh, mankind go toe to toe with triple H and, Eventually it would build and we would see him take on dude love and then cactus Jack would debut in Madison square garden, the same building back in 1997 and, and they're rolling all the way back then. And it continues. Uh, but this one really gets heated up on January 3rd on Monday night, raw triple H wins the world title from big show and mocks Foley with an impersonator. A week later, The Rock brings every superstar to the ring and demands that Foley be reinstated or the entire roster would walk out. Foley was reinstated, and he requests a street fight. Foley and Triple H are in a four-on-four tag match later that night. Triple H would pin Foley after using the ring bell and delivering a couple of pedigrees. And after the match, Foley takes his mask off and attacks Triple H. That week on SmackDown, Foley returns to his Cactus Jack persona and takes off the mankind attire to reveal the cactus Jack look. And now we're here and they get plenty of time, 26 minutes and 51 seconds. I got to say, and I'm sure some will disagree. I think this is the best match triple H ever had. It is, uh, maybe not the most talked about match that Foley had in the company because of, you know, the King of the ring from 98, but this is great shit, man. And if you're going to watch one thing. From the network on the old school stuff that we're going to cover on all my podcasts this week, this is the match Meltzer gave it four and a half stars. I'd give it five. I absolutely loved it. Even Meltzer said, this is an excellent and dramatic brawl. Helmsley delivered a hard chair and then they were off to the races. I mean, big, big bumps all over the place. Lots of violence, but lots of psychology too, telling a hell of a story. I thought it was tremendous and they're doing everything. I mean, uh, tables and. And 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 chairs and
1: thumbtacks. Yeah. They had a real street fight. Yeah, they used shit. They used their fists. They used their feet. They struck a lot. There was dramatic use of blood uh, that was added, accentuated the, the drama of the moment. Uh, you got two guys that had great chemistry together. Uh, they respected one another, and they were both unselfish in that respect. Mick knew that triple H was on a, on his role was his, his uh, ascending to the top. Uh, and you know, to stay there, to get there, he's still in his journey, but once he got there, he stays still there, which is great. But Mick Foley certainly helped make triple H the star that that is today with some of the performances that he provided uh, triple H in the matches that they had and to his credit, uh, this series of matches. Really was we were able to take Triple H out of that uh, Greenwich snob, you know, hoity-toity guy. That this son of a bitch is tough. He's a cerebral assassin. Somebody gave him that nickname. I can't remember who that guy was, but uh, the cerebral assassin was became a a tough guy as a result of his perfor- performances with Mick Foley, and I think that's everlasting. And that's where that's where exactly where his image. His images today,
0: really go out of your way to watch this one remarkable. And, and there is something I want to bring up in here because they're going to use barbed wire. There's a barbed wire wrapped two by four, and it wasn't that long ago, maybe just a couple of weeks prior to this, that the athletic commission would not allow ECW to use barbed wire. Of course here, the WWF is using it. It's always felt like if you were an ECW loyalist. There were sort of two sets of rules and I would think as a business guy, a lot of that's just driven by the revenue. You know, you're, you're going to have to pay more if you're the WWF because your, your fees are based on your attendance and tickets sold and your gate. So maybe they're willing to overlook some stuff if you're paying a little more, or was this more, you know, theater and when you guys were using rubber tip barbed wire, what was the, what was the story?
1: I, I think WWE had the clout and the money, money talks, uh, and you know, WWE had a guy there for many years. Uh, he was a judge in upstate New York and rich Herring and rich Herring had a real strong relationship to the New York state athletic commission and many of its members because rich had been around boxing and, and stuff for years. And, and uh, you know, that we always called him the judge because he was, a, like I said, a judge in upstate state, of New York who worked part-time as a judge and would commute down to Stanford to the office. I think rich had, had positive, uh, had positive interactions to get that, that done, but boy, it added so much. It was done the right way. It was done at the right time. It had amazing drama. And that was, uh, those guys wanted to make sure that when you left the garden that night, you weren't just talking about who won the rumble. You're talking about that goddamn street fight was amazing. And it was, it was as good a street fight as I think I've ever called. Be honest with you, and I caught a lot of big blood bass in the mid south, UWF, WCW, lots of them. Nobody, none of them had the drama that I could, because again, the facility, con the venue, it's a garden. And Triple H growing up in in New, in New Hampshire and Mick growing up in Long Island, the garden was the destination for the WWF that they followed when they were kids. They were there, man. They were there in a main event level match before 19,000 plus with all the whistles and bells and toys that they needed and they delivered.
0: Let's, uh, let's talk about the, um, the garden and the significance to Foley. I mean, this is something that even when he was a fan was a special building. Did you ever have conversations with Foley about what it meant to be in you know, sort of world title matches like this and big moments at the Garden.
1: Absolutely. You know, Mick is my guy. I, I we know the story of me having to convince McMahon that let's give him a chance, and then saying, "I'm gonna, I'm gonna acquiesce you, Jr. because of your position." And I want you to know what it's like to get your heart broken when a talent that you you love that you have a big emotional investment in. Uh, maybe not even, maybe not objective really to the, to the matter that you should be, uh, you need to know what it feels like to have your heart broken. And I believe this guy's going to break your heart. I had, I never even thought of that. I never thought of anything but success for Mick because upon talking to Mick over the years, even before we, either one of us got to WWE, we we're both in WCW, uh, you know, my goal was no different than his. I wanted to broadcast from the garden. I wanted to, to sit in that world's most famous arena and do my thing. And so did he, and it was never lost on either of us, but for Mick after hitchhiking and, you know, getting a ride to the garden or whatever, over his teenage years, all the, you know, he was there for snooker and, uh, uh, uh and, uh, Morocco, the jumping off the top of the cell, the pictures showed Mick, Mick in the audience. It was just a, it was a, it was a dream. It was almost too good to be true. It's almost like it was booked by a a screenwriter or something. It couldn't be this real, but it was that real. It meant that much to him. And as far as Hunter's concerned, he's a Kowalski guy and he grew up in the Northeast and any wrestling fan that grows up in the Northeast is a WWF guy originally, and has it morphed on through, but the garden was the, the destination. To make no mistake about it. So both these guys are in these high level matches and this major pay-per-view before a 19,000 plus sold out over a million dollar gate. And a lot of them came to see that match. So I'm, uh, i am uh, think both of them are on the, were, were, we're, we're, gassed to the max on that night. As far as emotion and enthusiasm.
0: Let's talk about our main event, man. Uh, the rock is the man. We know that coming in. Uh, he is the biggest star on the entire roster at this point, especially with Stone Cold on the shelf. And and New York loves him. Uh everything he does, they're hanging on, you know, his every word, as you said, they come out to see the big stars. And there's a lot of talent here on this one. First out is D Brown. Uh next up is Grandmaster Sexay. Then we've got uh Mosh from the Headbangers. And we've got Christian out at number four. Then Rakishi out at number five. Scotty Tuhati at six. Steve Blackman at seven. Viscera at eight. Big Boss Man at nine. Test at 10. The British Bulldog at 11. Gangrel at 12. Edge at 13. Bob Backland at 14 here at MSG. Yeah. Chris Jericho at 15. Crash Holly at 16. China at 17. Farouk at 18. Road dog at 19, Al Snow at 20, Val Venus at 21, Prince Albert at 22, Hardcore Holly at 23. Uh, The Rock is going to come in at number 24. And then Billy Gunn is 25. Big Show is 26. Bradshaw is 27. Kane is 28. The Godfather is 29. And X-Pac draws number 30. This is uh, an interesting rumble because it feels like there's a lot of talent on here but it doesn't feel like it's as star studded as some other ones in the past. Mm -hmm. A lot of guys are pulling double duty and really sticks out like a sore thumb. How many of these guys are no longer with us? Of course, we've lost grandmaster sex. we've lost viscera. We've lost big boss, man. We've lost test. We've lost, uh, the British bulldog. We've lost China. Uh, we've lost crash Holly. Uh, there, there's a lot of these guys who are no longer with us. And this wasn't all that long ago. When you watched this one back for the first time in a long time, what really stood out to you?
1: Well, I had some mixed emotions, quite frankly, to be honest with you. I enjoyed going back and watching the show for the first time since uh, January of 2000, since we did it live. The only other time I saw uh, clips of it were when they were in packages that we're using to build something else uh, subsequently uh, after the Royal Rumble. Uh, but it is, it's, it's, it's sad. There are sad moments in that, especially seeing uh, a, a smiling, bright-eyed talent coming to the ring, living a dream, and knowing that they're no longer with us. It's just not easy to digest. And you wish there was something that was—you wish it wasn't that way, but it was. But the, the reality of life is what it is. So, uh, But this show is built around the rock. You know, Austin gone, the rock had to be featured. And I thought we did a nice job. And of course, Dwayne did a great job of running with the opportunity to get over more and he certainly did that on that night. I thought.
0: One of the other guys that you really spend a lot of time making is Rikishi. And you know he's a big fella. He's in there 16 minutes and 23 seconds, but he has seven eliminations. And when it's time for him to actually get eliminated. It takes a big boss man Bob Backlund, Edge, Gangrel, Test, and the British Bulldog. Uh, so you have you're really making Rikishi here for the year 2000. Why was Vince so high on Rikishi here at Rumble 2000?
1: Uh, he Vince was uh, sold on the family. Uh, the Samoan lineage was something that Vince believed in, as we all did uh, at that point in time. Uh, junior size was, uh, junior Fatu was, his size was extraordinary. Uh, had a, he had a very, uh, the, uh, what stink face was, was, uh, unique, you know, and got over, he, he was getting over great smile. You know, it's a long way from being the Sultan. Uh, he, uh, junior Fatu always had the great skills. He still, he, he's, he a, he's still, he's got a great, still He's a great teacher. But and it's, one of his sons, I, I've been watching on the Indies or on the Indies. I think he's with the MLW. Uh, God damn. He's a hand. He's really good. So, uh, I don't know, just the size, agility, He'd paid his dues. He was a loyal dude, uh, a lot of reasons. And I don't, and I think all of them are valid. Quite frankly, I didn't like the Rakishi running over Austin angle. Cause quite honestly, you know, and, and maybe in today's market. The reality of a, of a neck injury, uh, is, uh, would, would have been enough uh, and build it that way. But it was, we're still in an era where no matter what you do, you got to promote and more importantly, protect your top baby faces. Uh, that's why baby faces rarely in that era lost by submission. It happened not often, but that was a whole different mindset, different philosophy that she utilized today, but you know, events like Rikishi. Junior Fatu is hard not to like. And uh, he's a good dude. And I just thought that I think that he, his time had come. And Vince thought he could, it was going to be, we could, there was money there. And, uh, you know, we, it just was one of those deals. And, and quite frankly, he did all right. I always thought that Junior's best, when Junior was in the WCW in a tag with Samu, I really loved that combination. I thought they were really, really special. So, but nonetheless, Vince thought there was something there and I appreciate this from Vince that he gave, he, he helped junior with that break as you, as it were, uh, because he felt he had, he had deserved it and had earned it. And that was all I needed to hear. Uh, plus I like the guy.
0: It's interesting because you, usually someone is, is the quote unquote iron man and, and shows off how long they can stay in this one. The Iron Man in this one is test. He has 26 minutes and 16 seconds. And I think this is the first rumble since like 89 where no one lasted for more than 30 minutes. Uh, of course the story that they're trying to tell is well-established. Meltzer even complimented that. He said, uh, you could see a lot of thought was put into the booking as far as who came in, when, and when the eliminations were to take place. Uh, this accomplished its goal, but seemed to drag at many points and almost came across as simply a series of lengthy ring entrances. Um, when you saw this one back, what did you think of this rumble? Where does this stack up as as a rumble match? Not the rumble pay per view as a whole, this match in particular.
1: Well, I didn't have any issues with it. I, I thought it was fine. I really did. Uh, I, yeah, every every rumble, including this year's rumble with Lesnar coming out number one, is a different story different timing, different, different participants coming in at different times, being asked to do different things. So they all got their own story. But, uh, the fact that, uh, they kept, they backloaded this this thing where a guy could come in and make an impression and had there, I don't I don't have that right in front of me. How many guys were eliminated by certain individuals, but there were some guys that, that had, like you said earlier about FATU, I think, would you say he eliminated seven people? Uh, but there are other guys that li- eliminated multiple people as well. <laughs> so, so I didn't have a problem with it, Conrad. I thought it was okay. Uh, like I said, the, the issue there was, what do we do to protect the rock? Because Stone Cold is laying in a, in the, and laying down in a hospital bed in uh, San Antonio. How do we get the great one to become even greater in perception and position on the card? We knew that if we just gave him, him, me, Dwayne, the platform that he would run with the ball and kick ass. And he did, he did time and time again. So that was, that's what I thought about it. It was a, it was a Royal rumble where some, some guys that were unsung could maximize their minutes, maybe turn a head or two, but it was for the rock to continue to take another step upward.
0: We should mention that, uh, the final four. Come down to X-Pac, Kane, Big Show, and Rock. Um, X-Pac, it looks like he's eliminated. I guess he is actually, but the referee doesn't see it. So he slips back in, nails Kane with a spinning heel kick and uh, eliminates him. So now we're down to three. X-Pac gives Big Show the Bronco Buster. Show doesn't sell that at all. Then he presses X-Pac over his head, dumps him out in front of the ref. So now we're down to our final two. And uh, eventually, The Rock gets Big Show down, gives him the people's elbow. Crowd goes nuts for that. He's coming back, though, with a choke slam. And he's going to throw The Rock over, but Rock grabs the top rope to avoid his foot hitting the floor. And then Show goes all the way over. And Melzer would say they got you ready for this finish by showing you the Bulldog Shawn Michaels finish, where they were the last two and Michaels was thrown out, but both feet didn't touch the floor. He comes back in and wins. Afterwards, of course. Um, show would, uh, attack rock and throw a rock over the top rope. But by this point he's already won two and three quarter stars. What'd you think of the finish? You know, we managed to get the people's elbow in and, and try to tell a story along the way.
1: We accomplished everything that we needed to accomplish at the end of the match. Uh, the rock standing tall, overcoming the odds, uh, avoiding the biggest challenge physically, uh, in the company in the big show. I th- we accomplished what we needed to accomplish. Now, again, it's, everything's subjective. It may not have been the best rumble. You know, you mentioned that I, I didn't think it was a bad rumble. You didn't say that either, by the way, No. but again, what was your goal guys to writing this show, Pat Patterson, uh, did the lion's share of the work when formatting the, uh, rumble, that was his creation. I mean, as far is, as the
0: even, the, even here, is he, is he formatting entrances and, and exits?
1: I think he's probably formatting the order of entry and the order of out. Yeah. Yeah. I I can't remember when it, that was. Responsibility was largely taken off of him, but I know that for many years, it was, uh, it was him and Bruce. Right. And Bruce would kind of keep the records and make sure Pat stayed focused, but largely the vision of how, who came out, when, and how the, you'd accumulate so many guys that you'd have a big star come in, make an impact by eliminating several guys. Uh, and I think that's probably what's going to happen this year with Lesnar. You load it up, Lesnar unloads it. You load it up, Lesnar unloads it. Then you take care of your business at the end. Uh, and so, uh, Patterson was brilliant at that. And, and to Bruce's credit, uh, he did, a, he did, he did, a, he and Pat work very, very well together in that era. And the Royal Rumble was one of their big projects. They would, I think that they, I think they ate a lot of hot dogs at Swanky Franks. When they're supposed to be working, I kidded them, kidded them about that deal. But of course, you're in the creative vein; you can be creating anywhere you are, even, even eating a grilled hot dog at Slanky Franks in Norwalk.
0: The uh, the timing of the entrances is something that's been debated a lot. I think they're calling it, uh, or it's been nicknamed, "Titan Time." Um, oh, yeah. Meltzer uh, says uh, it was said ahead of time that it would be one minute between entrances, but it was ranging from a minute and a half to about a minute and fifty. So it was clear they were playing this one by ear. Who do you think is, uh, is sending guys? Is that Bruce on a headset in the back?
1: Yeah, it's grill position, uh, and everything's going to be based on how much time is left in the show to finish our business. So it's just a simple matter of mathematics. But as we said earlier, in my opinion, the show was a little bit overwritten in as much as that we had too much show that resulted in some very short matches. For no obvious reason, other than the show was just mistimed too much. So, uh, that's kind of how I look at that. It just was too much. Uh, and again, the issue is real simple here. What was your goal? The goal was to get the rock over. Did that, was that accomplished? I believe it was. So therefore mission accomplished and whether it was artistic success or I didn't like that, this guy came in too early. This guy came in too late. Okay, fine. That's, Hey, that's your prerogative. But the goal was to get the rock over and his hand raised. And that's exactly what we did. And I thought in fine fashion.
0: Really, really good stuff. We should mention that the, uh, the fallout from this show, uh, we are going to see a rematch at no way out, uh, with uh, cactus Jack and, and triple H. And we know what the stakes are going to be. It's a retirement stipulation that only lasts two months and then cactus is back at WrestleMania. And he's written about that, that he wishes he had that one back. Um, overall though, you know, when this show was said and done, what'd you think? Thumbs up, thumbs down, thumbs in the middle.
1: No, I thought it was the thumbs up. I thought it was a thumbs up, uh, for that night of entertainment, considering the venue, the crowd, the spontaneity, the surprises, Taz's pop, big surprise, uh, you know, the, 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 the rumble match where rock comes in, in the mid twenties and I guess a very strong competition, dodges all the bullets, including the big cannon shot by a big show. Uh, I thought it, that would give it a win for me. Uh, notwithstanding the the unbelievable, uh, street fight between triple H and Mick Foley. I thought was, uh, again, you know, if I go back and look at, if I did a DV DVD of JR's favorite ten, top 10 matches or top 20 matches in his 26 year career in WWE, uh, the triple H McFoley match would definitely be included in that. And I have great respect for both men then and now. And I thought that, uh, they, they did above and beyond. They dropped blood. They let, lo- they lost, they lost blood. They lost their DNA proof that they had a fight. And, uh, I loved it. It wasn't one of the situations where you got. You know, you got six guys standing outside of the ring, waiting for somebody to, to cannonball over the top rope and you're stupid enough to stand there and catch them. Are you shitting me? Where did, where did this come from? So, uh, but that wasn't that deal. This is a real fight or at least of course it looked like a real fight, which is all that matters. Yeah.
0: It's it's so real that at one point, triple H takes a bump on the stairs and Use a wrestling term. His leg was lacerated. Like he's bleeding from the calf to the point that he needs stitches. And when he shows up on raw the next night, you have commentary, uh, you know, as he shows up with a bandage on his head said that he had to get stitches in his head and on his calf. And, uh, of course as him and cactus Jack are doing a promo, he's like, if I were you, I wouldn't want to face me again either. And of course we know what we're going to set up towards. Raw the next night would have a main event with Rock and Rikishi on one side. That shows you what they're doing with Rikishi. He's in the Raw main event against Big Show and Triple H. Uh, and that show, even though that may not sound like, oh, that's a main event I want to see, it gets a 6.8 rating. Man, <laughs> people would stab their mom to have a 6.8 rating. I, th- I think it's
1: that Southern announcing. Yes, there you go. <laughs> Lawler, JR, those two goddamn old decrepit hillbillies, they must have done something right. But no, the, the ta- it's all about the talent, and the show was hot. Remember, it's following the the Royal Rumble, which is was hugely publicized, got a lot of buzz, uh, and it just was. You know, I didn't know we'd do that good, but a six point eight rating? Are you kidding me? Can you imagine the celebrations that would be had today if Raw got a six point eight, or AEW got a six point eight, or anybody in the world, at SmackDown got a six point eight? My buddy Jacob Olman at Fox would be doing uh, cartwheels. Tony Khan would be have, having a celebration. Six point eight ain't given away, and that's an accomplishment. And so uh, I, I just, uh, I, I, I just thought we were we were hot right then. And look, you can't, Conrad, you can't discount how important The Rock was to us. I'm not, I'm not giving him all the credit. That would not be fair because he never went out there and had great matches by himself. Right. This is not an acapella business, but by having him and him being on him unencumbered by Austin, right. Him being having the sole focus on him and being able to groom him and build him and let him grow and elevate was amazing timing. It was almost like Steve's surgery was serious, obviously. And we all sat on our edge of our seats. I made many trips to San Antonio to make sure he, he was okay because you know, he needed reassuring too that things are going to be all right. And, and they were, he got some more time, but having the rock there was so massive in 2000 for WWE, uh, it just speaks to the fact that you had the greatest box office sensation in history, having neck surgery. And we didn't miss a beat at the box office with Dwayne Johnson carrying the ball,
0: let's get to Twitter. we got lots of questions about this show. We had lots of tweets that said things like, this is my favorite show ever. This is my first Royal Rumble. I remember, uh, Derek T Lewis even wrote, I was in the crowd that night. Are there any plans for cactus to win the world title in the street fight against triple H? I got to tell you, man, that would have felt like a really special moment. Would it not? I mean, to have him cause everybody in the crowd by that point, it's well established remembers, you know, Foley telling the story of hitchhiking to the garden to see Snooka jump off the cage, mm-hmm. to see him win the world title in a street fight like this. They would have blown the roof off the building. Huh?
1: Yeah, it would. Yeah, it would, would have, uh, but that wasn't the plan. We, we, the plan was to, we were still building triple H then. So don't think about triple H in today's as the, you know, uh, big cheese there at WWE working directly under Vince, uh, and someday he'll be running the company. No doubt about that. I got no issues with that whatsoever. Uh, if you're wondering if I should knock WWE at this point, I'm not, I, we have not WWE in weeks and we're not going to here. <laughs> well, I mean, come on. It's silly. Yeah. And we're fans. Sure. Anybody that's anybody. That's why I get, I get pissed about people that have this issue about what are you going to watch on Wednesday night? Well, why don't you look? We got DVR. We got all this other TV. We got all this shit. Watch both shows. Right. Promote pro wrestling. It doesn't matter what, what, Who's banner it's under? Don't be so naive and ignorant that you think that's a it's a big deal. I got a this is my team. I've watched them since I was thirteen years old. Okay, the bottom line is that the WWE is uh, at that time we were trying to get new guys over and move them up the ladder to a permanent spot on the upper echelon. With Austin on the sideline, it created a different. The need for how we book things. And we needed triple H to elevate to the next level. So he could headline cards with the rock or whomever. So, uh, no, the plan was always for triple H to, to win. Uh, as far as I remember. And I, uh, and I agree with that to this very day, all these years later.
0: Uh, interesting question here that we didn't talk about in great detail from Travis. He says, uh, Love the show. Jer was the voice of my childhood. Approximately how big was the hole in Triple H's leg and exactly how did he sustain it from memory? I think it was on the steps. Was it not?
1: I think so too. Yeah, it was significant. Uh, it was, it was more of a gash than a slit, right? Uh, puncture type thing, uh, as, as, uh 20 years later, trying to remember a guy's cut. Uh, but yeah, it was, it was, it was a serious, and here's the thing. We use that as a way to, again, illustrate his toughness. He wasn't, he was no longer going to be this elite, smooth, silky technique guy. Uh, that was a blue blood from Greenwich, Blah blah, blah. He became the game. He became the cerebral assassin. And with all that said, his work then fit all those monikers. And I thought that, uh, he had a, he had a defining moment for his character moving forward that night in the garden to dispel the fact, I'll give you an example or another, another parallel to that. When Shawn Michaels had a hell of a cell match with the undertaker early on, maybe the first one, I'm not sure. Uh, it showed that Shawn Michaels was not simply a, an amazing technique wrestler, a smooth silky smooth. The, the little bastard became a tough guy that night because he stood toe to toe with the dead man. On many occasions, and hung in there, and we pointed that out as well. That we're seeing a different side of Shawn Michaels. Well, we certainly saw a different side of Triple H in my in my view and in my memory. So it was no no. There was never any other plan but to continue to build him, and you know, and and Mick was at that point too. It wasn't going to kill Mick, yay or nay, if he won the title. If he won the title, it'd be a great thing. But by not winning it, did it kill him? No, not not whatsoever.
0: Let's keep it going here. Uh, big guns rights. Was there anyone openly advocating against the TLC match? This is an era of pushing the limits. Was anyone around to say, Hey, this might be too dangerous to set a precedent with a match like this.
1: Well, the writing team had no, didn't have enough common sense to say that because they did, they just be guessing. Uh, but no, I don't remember any issues with that at all because look, uh, the Hardy's the Dudley's edge and Christian were amazing at that whole process and it was entertaining. It was physical. It was new. It, the, the, it, it, the match was easy to call uh, because it made sense. It was very simplistic on how you won. You know, you, you disable, you, you erect the, the ladder and you obtain the title or whatever's hanging above the ring. So no, nobody had anything, any issues with it. I I, I never believed at the time that it would be a. Thing where you'd have TLC pay-per-views, which I still don't think is a good idea. We sure. have a you have a you have a you have a tables match and you have a chair match and you know a ladder match and then you have a wall in one deal. It's stupid, bad booking because you got too much duplicity in what you see in the ring using the same gimmicks. There's only so much you can do with a ladder, uh, so and a lot of but. There's things you can do don't get me wrong but there's not a lot you could do that's not that you have never seen before but the Hardys the Dudleys and Edge Christian uh they did all they could to make sure those matches were different and unique and again uh having bookers like you know uh when we had that this match here we had the Hardys and uh and it, and uh, the Dudleys what well, damn man you got bubba booking his side you got matt hardy booking his side and it worked
0: one of the things that, uh, I saw, uh, as, uh, as I'm looking through the questions here on Twitter is about that triple H leg injury and Dan Coyle believes that, uh, he was suplexed on the wooden pallet. And that's when the leg injury happened. And apparently on the original Royal Rumble DVD that was released, there's extra footage of Hunter being attended to by the medical staff. So it, it was pretty serious as you said.
1: Yeah, it was a serious puncture. It looked bad, looked ugly, but here's the thing folks, you know, uh, Decisions that Triple H makes, things he said, you know, he made that comment that I'm sure he regrets about uh, Paige. Uh, she may have had children, she, she, but she may not remember it. He, I know he was going for co- comedy. I know he's trying to be funny, light in the moment, but it was bad timing. I'm sure he regrets it. I'm assuming he does. If he doesn't, then he needs to reevaluate his game plan because he ain't bulletproof. The company ain't bulletproof. Uh, but you know, he's he he. He, the storm, the storm there, he think of this, think of the pain he was in from his leg, from his getting his body beat on. We take for granted all these, they're, they're, they're working punches. Well, look at the, look at the, go back and watch this match. Right. Look at the things these cats did to each other. <laughs> there was there. Yeah, they were working, but they're working damn sure, stiff and physical and neither man bitched or moaned. They did it. They did it for the fans. They did it for the goodness of the match. And so, again, if you want to go back and watch Mick Foley, maybe at his all-time best, and certainly Triple H at his all-time best in the Cerebral Assassin uh, uh, era. This is the match you're going to see, man. And if you're a wrestler and you're looking at how can I make my no disqualification sl- uh, slash street fight match uh, be more uh, impactful, memorable. You might get some good ideas from watching this one.
0: Brian Breaker writes: whose idea was it to have Kai and Ty and Main Street Posse keep doing the run-ins? We didn't really talk about that when we talked about the match, but that was an interesting uh, idea. And I know that that Bruce was real high on both of those outfits.
1: Yeah, me too. I like Kai and Ty. Uh, You certainly. I know Bruce really liked. uh. Uh, Dick Togo. Obviously, Dick Togo. Uh, I'm kidding. He was. Pat- he, uh,
0: he's still really good friends with Funaki, as far as I know.
1: Sure. Funaki, the big Green Bay Packer fan, who lives in San Antonio. Good kid. He's still there, man. Uh, we brought Funaki, Taka, Michinoku, Dick Togo, and uh, uh, what's the other guy's name? He was, uh, oh, God. Men's Tail. Uh, men's Tail. yeah. Good little group. A good little group. They all can work, and and good guys. Never a goddamn peep out of them. They're always at work on time. They're dedicated. They're loyal. They're team players, and of course, uh, the the group mean street posse got their. You know, they got in because of Shane. They're at legit Shane, legit high school buddies from Greenwich High School. Rodney and uh, Pete. Rodney and uh, Pete Gasparino. Interesting yeah. question
0: from big strong boy. He writes, do you book a Royal rumble backwards? I don't think I've ever really thought about that, but that probably makes sense. Right. You start with the finish in mind.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you, you, any, any great program, anything you do in that regard, you start at the very top of your card that you perceive to be your main events and, and work out the finish and then you, you take, you use you protect what's being used in that finish for the rest of the card. That's the idea. Unfortunately, we all have seen it to where you say, well, how many pays the die, the suicide dive, uh through the second and third rope, how many of those you get a match? When you got one or two, they stayed special. Talents today don't realize that the dives outside that never beats anybody. Nobody ever dives outside, hits their move, then throws the fellow back in the ring and pins him. That never happens. All it is a glorified high spot that now is overused. It used to be special when it was used infrequently It was kept special. It's not that way anymore. So I, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a big believer that the reality of what Foley and Triple H did, they didn't do it that stuff. They had their own match and it worked out very, very well, but I, I'm a, I like the mean street posse. Hey, they're good team players. They wanted to learn. Uh, they're good guys. And they got over they got over the fact that the boys all knew they were Shane's buddies. They had not quote unquote paid their dues. They had not been in territories for years, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. But they got over in the locker room because they were men's men, they were athletes, and they worked their ass off. Were they great? I don't know if they were great, but were they were they additions, the positive additions to what we were doing at that time in that role? There was a role for the main street posse that was not on top but it was a role and they filled their role. They played their position. I thought very well.
0: Uh, interesting question here, uh, that we get all the time that you and I've never really talked about. Randy orange writes in, what's your opinion of the old simple stages? Like we see here with a taxi and a streetlight, uh, compared to the, uh, the bright LEDs today. So the concept being, These days, every entrance set is the same, whether it's Raw or SmackDown or whatever. And they utilize the LEDs to sort of dress it up. They had a much different approach here. LEDs aren't really what they are now. And so they had set design. Do you miss that?
1: No, I've never been a big uh, proponent, Conrad, of the set design. I mean, you're always, when you go and, you know, I saw those set designs for the first time much more often than not, uh, for the first time when I got in the arena that day, uh, I didn't look at the artwork. It wasn't passed around. They generally want to keep it kind of confidential. Uh, but I've never been a big fan of, uh, of that. I'm a bigger fan of what happens bell to bell. I'm a bigger fan of what, in the presentation, overall presentation, but the physical set, I you know you wanted to be nice and unique and different fit the moment, fit the title of the show. Uh, but other than that, I was kind of nonplussed by all that stuff. Uh, maybe it's just my age. Uh, it just didn't seem like to me it was a the as big a deal. Now I'll tell you this: uh, a week or so ago, we did uh, Bash, at at the, Bash at the Beach, right? Yeah. At AEW down in 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 Miami. Well, you know, I I got texted. People said I'm going to be very disappointed if there's not sand and palm trees and they named all these props they needed to have there to make them happy. And I never realized it was that big a deal to some people. Right. And of course we came through and it was a nice set and it did have sand and it had palm trees and it fit the Miami vice moment and all those good things, but I never realized fans really had to, that's, they have a dog in that hunt and it's important to some people. It just, was never important to me. Uh, cause I had too much on my plate to worry about or to be concerned or invest much time in the set and when in my role. Not just, not just my role as the talent relations guy, but you know, I had to go out and broadcast this damn thing. So I had to prepare for that. It just was not a high priority for me. So I don't disagree with people that like it. It just not, was not my thing.
0: What about surprise entrance in the Royal Rumble? We got lots of questions about that. Caught in the crossfire, right? And who is JR's personal favorite surprise Royal Rumble entrant? It it is one of the interesting things that has developed over time with wrestling fans where. Everybody's sort of fantasy books. Oh, they've only announced 27. Who are those other three going to be? Uh-huh. And and a few years ago, everybody thought, oh, it's definitely Kenny Omega. And of course we know that's not the case. And, <laughs> uh, here, the big surprise is, is Bob Backlund. Some yep. may have been disappointed with that, but you know, maybe in a, in a different set of circumstances, if those WCW releases were different, the crowd would have went bananas for an Andy Guerrero or Chris Benoit here, but it, it wasn't to pass. Do you have a favorite Royal Rumble entrance where everyone mm. was surprised?
1: Wow. Good question. Uh, I think one time John Cena came back at a rumble.
0: Yeah. I think that was six and the man, everybody went nuts.
1: Yeah. It was one of the biggest ovations, uh, that I'd ever heard for any sport, any athlete, any entrance ever. So that would stand that stands out in my mind. But the one we're talking about here with Bobby Backlund 08, considering...
0: My bad. I said, oh six. That's oh eight.
1: Okay. Well, that's all right. But nonetheless, it was still a, a pretty damn cool Absolutely. surprise. Absolutely. And Bob Backlund coming back to the garden where he once was the, he was the king, right? And that's the main mistake about don't look at Mr. Backlund today when you see him or card shows or what have you Bobby Backlund was still loves being Mr. Backlund. He won't sign an autograph, the crazy bastard, unless you can recite the president's, he must not like to sign the autographs. I can't do that either. But Bobby coming back to the garden, I thought was so organically nostalgic that the guys that had their kids there could say, he was my guy, son, when I was your age, it was Bobby Backlund and that's true. So I thought the Bobby Backlund thing was, was good. The misconception is. Was he a his former self because he's been this quote unquote eccentric heel who's wanting to run for office and all these things. But Bob Backlund had, he earned his chops there right there in the garden as the man, he was a stone cold, the Hulk Hogan, the Bret Hart. He was everything he did. He did Eddie Bruno. So he was a special and I thought that was pretty cool, but I think the John Cena surprise, which I believe was at the garden as well.
0: Yeah, it was, I wait.
1: well was like a Jesus criminy. I mean it's one of those deals where you're if you're a smart broadcaster and you and we will all wanna be, you just lay out. And if Vince or somebody was saying to say something during that entrance, I, I would have ignored them because there's nothing I could say, there's nothing Lawler could say that would would supersede what we're hearing already. Natural passion uh from the fans. And I, I, just, uh, it was one of those moments you got to lay out it was much like the task moment, you know, Taz had all these regrets and it's not regrets, not a good word. He probably had apprehensions. He's always a little unsteady in that regard. Uh, and you know, I, I he, he's that way and he, now he's at a point where he can laugh about it, but back then it wasn't a laughable matter. But man, that, when that crowd is going that crazy, there's nothing announcers can really add to it, lay your ass out. Let me hear it at home, what the audience is feeling in the arena, and then jump in there toward the tail end when the pop starts to to fade a little bit. Uh, but I got to think Cena's number one, but the back of the one was not bad.
0: Let's talk about the Taz situation. Lots of questions uh, on our social media. If you haven't already follow us there at Jr grilling on Twitter, and you can ask a question about next week, which we'll talk about in, in preview in just a moment, but lots of questions like, Hey, why didn't you guys? you know, hype him and his debut on raw and SmackDown instead of debuting him as a surprise on a pay-per-view, it does, it does stand out as being a little different. And I wonder if part of that wasn't, was maybe the original idea to have Taz be a surprise entrant in the Royal Rumble and Ken Shamrock be the guy in there with Kurt Angle. And of course we know the Shamrock thing sort of comes to a head this same month. But since we know, you know, Hey, he's, he's out with an injury, but he might be coming back. Maybe we can get him back. We're not sure what it is. We'll just leave it sort of empty and, and give ourselves some options with. Mystery opponent.
1: Was that considered? I don't think so. Don't think so. I think it might've been considered another, it's another option you could, we could have utilized right. no doubt, but I think the fact that Bobby had says Bobby backless, has great, uh, history and a great legacy. The, the foundation where the foundation was established in a large part in his career in WWE in the garden and having those surprises in a, Hey, look, they'll have surprises in this year's Royal Rumble because you got to at least have one or two surprises. You have to have one or two guys that, that eliminate multiple people. There's things that are formulaic that should not be changed because well, we've done that. That's a big thing that some wrestling promoters have screwed themselves because well we've done that yeah it was good right yeah so why don't you tweak it put a little different coat of paint on the same application and and do that well you know we want to be different well then you're stupid it's not wrong being different but don't cut off your nose to fight your face because you're on to something good uh, so Bobby Bobby was a great surprise there like I said when the more we talk about it the more I remember being excited that he was going to be there because I was very anticipation, uh, anticipatory regarding what he, the crowd was going to do. And he got that nostalgic, look who's back. And so they embraced him for a while. Then of course, he's not the same Bob Beck when they knew that, you know, back in the day that when all those great matches in the garden and the, you know, the boy face champion, uh, it was a different deal? So I don't know. I think Bobby was a great surprise. Don't think there's any other choice in that deal. The shamrock thing was a little bit, you know, again, tenuous, uh, on both sides, you know, I think Vince had a, a really good to Kenny Well, Kenny's Kenny was doing so well for us. And I know he was in line to make a lot more money. And I know that as he continued to grow his game, he'd be in more main events. Therefore the money would be there automatically because you're gonna get paid more if you're in those main events. Uh, But, you know, I think Vince's issue with Kenny might've been, he couldn't feel. Vince didn't feel that Kenny was totally committed to WWE as long as he kept talking about the MMA fights. So, like I said earlier, we were talking about this, the MMA fights just did not get out of the system of Kenny Shamrock. And, And that was troubling when you're trying to build a top guy. If we had only had plans to use Kenny Shamrock, uh, part-time Conrad, then him going in fighting and coming back and using Kenny part-time underneath is one thing but to have the, to know that you got a top guy here that if you, if you got him full time, you can make a bona fide major main event star out of, uh, that's another issue. And our, the feeling was he loved MMA fighting so much in that time, at that time of his life that we were going to be, we weren't going to be his, he wasn't going to take us to the prom. And so it was better off just to decide not to be available for the prom. And if if he gets the fighting out of the system and he's healthy and everything's good, then we might review it later on. But that later on never did really come.
0: Lots and lots of questions and feedback about Mick Foley taking the pedigree on the thumbtacks. Did anybody try to talk him out of that?
1: I doubt it. It wouldn't have done any good. Uh, if, if it if it came down from vince to veto it then that's another story but quite frankly uh i don't re- i don't know if anybody tried to talk Mick out of those things he, he he was lucky that he had a free reign to do what he thought was applicable in those type of matches and again here's another thing about that i talked about how great i thought that uh, bubba Dudley's booking ackerman is then and still is by the way and how much i enjoy his uh, thoughts on on uh, the business on busted open on XM channel one fifty three, uh, but you had uh, you had two guys that were that had booking abilities, Triple H, and Mick Foley, so they're booking their own match. And they got an agent. They got somebody that's kind of helping them, you know, navigate. But basically, it's up to them. And who who better? Who better would you want to work out that match? But those two guys, they're going to do more. They're going to try. They're entertain the audience more. It's just, it just works. I don't think they were vetted or, or, you know, it's sanitized because what the hell, what else could they have been wanting to do that they didn't do? They both bled like hogs. They beat the shit out of each other with inanimate objects that you can't work with very well. They hurt each other. They pushed the limits. What else could they have? Left? What, what do we leave out? What would they have added? I, I got to say nothing. So they were given full reign on creativity, and that's good. That's why I believe, why do you like this AEW brand? Because we don't have writers, and the talents are obligated to come up with a lot of their own stuff. You think Jericho waits on somebody to give him the marching orders on what he's going to do with John Moxley, or John, or vice versa with Moxley and Jericho? No. That's them being able to be creative and live that creative dream, so to speak. Cause they know what they could do better than anybody else and do it well. So no, I, I think uh, nobody would have said anything about that Conrad because we trusted Mick not to go crazy. And that may have been a mistake quite frankly, because he quit. He, Mick always took it to the very edge, man. And that's cause he loved what he was doing as so much. And sometimes that could, again, could be the old blessing or it could be a curse.
0: The, uh, original creative uh, for WrestleMania, you know, with, with, Austin involved would have been different. What would he have done at Royal rumble? If you think he was, uh, he was a gamer here and he was available. Who's that now? If Austin was in this role, oh my God, if he wasn't well, sidelined, how would the show have been different? Do you think?
1: Well, he would have been, uh, he'd probably won the rumble. Yeah. You can't bring a guy back from a catastrophic injury and not have success if they're a babyface for sure. And that would have stopped the rock's growth. Yep, stopped maybe the too strong. It would have slowed down his. It would his have growth.
0: stuttered it for sure.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, but you don't bring you don't bring uh, Mickey Mantle back into the lineup and him not hit fourth. He's a cleanup hitter. That's Austin. So, but because you didn't have him, you had another guy that hit pretty good power and clear the bases and do his thing, and batting fourth in the lineup, and that's uh, the great one. So we were very lucky we had both those guys there. And, uh, I think it's of our subtle moments in talent relations that, you know, can you imagine not having anybody ready or not having talents recruited, signed and trained and in place in case somebody went down? What if we had not had the rock, right? What if that's serious? That's a, that's a major question. And one I'm very, very happy that we don't have to answer.
0: Well, there's lots of what ifs about next week's show. And as much as I enjoyed Royal rumble 2000, I think I enjoy the, the garnish around Royal rumble, 2005, even better. That's what we're doing next week right here. And went down on January 30th, 2005. So we're right at the 15 year anniversary. And next week we'll be back at you on the exact 15 year anniversary of that show from Fresno, California. You may remember this is the Royal rumble where we had, all of the WWE superstars do a little commercial uh, as if it was West side story, which is just tremendous. This is also the show where we would see edge and Shawn Michaels in the singles match, unbelievably, the undertaker is wrestling hiding right here in a casket match, a triple threat with JBL big show and Kurt angle for the WWE title, triple H and Randy Orton for the world heavyweight championship. But the main event is all about the 30 man Royal rumble match. And things don't go exactly as planned for anyone. It comes down to John Cena and Batista and they have to call it and it, and it brings the chairman of the board down and somehow, and this sounds make believe he tears, not one, but both of his quads and still tries to walk on. What a fucking story. So much to unpack next week. And there's so much talent in this particular Royal rumble. The first two guys in the thing are Andy Guerrero and Chris Benoit two guys. We spent a lot of time talking about today. Stay tuned next week and every week right here on grilling Jr on Westwood one. Tell your friends, if you haven't already to hit the subscribe button, leave us a five-star review. If you think we've earned it and uh, we'll see you next week right here on Grillin' Jr with the voice of wrestling, Jim Ross.
1: John brings his skewed sense of humor. Jeff brings tips to cut strokes off your next round together.